Restaurant Unstoppable episode 1022 with Jack McGarry. Every system is perfectly designed for the results that it gets. So if you have a shit bar or shit restaurant, you've designed that. That you've designed it exactly for what it's doing. Are you ready for it factors, success stories, failures, and bombs of restaurant industry knowledge? Then join Eric Cacciatore and today's incredible guest as they share what it takes to become unstoppable. This episode is brought to you by Pop Menu. Look, there is a lot of elements to consider when growing your restaurant. Like, are you connecting with your diners and with the right message? And could your kitchen put out more orders than your dining room has room for? There's so much to consider, and it can be overwhelming when you got into this business for the food and the people, and that's why I recommend Pop Menu, and that's why restaurants get Pop Menu, frankly. Pop Menu is technology for restaurants that are ready to grow. For a limited time, get $100 off your first month, plus lock in one unchanging monthly rate at popmenu.com slash unstoppable. Go now to get $100 off your first month at popmenu.com slash unstoppable. This episode is brought to you by Restaurant Systems Pro, and they are launching their first time ever 60-day pilot program. This is something that's never been done before. This 60-day event is at no cost to you, but it's not for everyone. Fred Langley, CEO of Restaurant Systems Pro, will be leading a group of restaurateurs through the Restaurant System Pro software and setting up the systems for your restaurants. Fred will teach you recipe costing cards, guidance in your books for accounting, cash control, sales forecasting, checklist, budgeting for the entire year, scheduling for profit, it, more butts and seats, and that's not it. If you are interested in this, head over to www.restaurantunstoppable.com slash RSP. That's RSP for Restaurant Systems Pro. www.restaurantunstoppable.com slash RSP. This episode is brought to you by Reachify. Why are you still taking phone calls when you have online services that can support the majority of your guest needs? Redirect your callers so you can focus on the food and the guests across the counter. Reachify is powerful and flexible. For example, with advanced automation and caller deflection, Reachify prevents missed caller opportunities and diverts callers to online actions. Reachify also simplifies workflows for your team, enabling them to operate more efficiently to attract, retain, and engage callers effectively. Reachify, be in control of the conversation you want to have when you're able to have them. Hop on to reachify.io slash unstoppable to find out how to revolutionize the way your restaurant does business. And when you use that link, get one month free after onboarding. That's reachify.io slash unstoppable. Restaurant owners and operators, you can make a difference in the lives of your staff and their families by supporting CORE, which stands for Children of Restaurant Employees. CORE is a national nonprofit that provides financial grants to food and beverage service employees with children when either the employee, their child, or their partner faces a life-altering medical crisis or natural disaster. Not only can you share CORE as a benefit 
in resource with your staff, you can also donate directly or host a fundraising promotion. Core critically needs your financial support to continue to provide relief to restaurant employees that qualify for a grant when life does not go as planned. Support of Core allows you to give back to your employees and restaurant families across the country. Visit coregives.org to learn more. Together, we can make a difference in the lives of those who serve us daily. With excitement, <laughs> allow me to introduce to you today's guest, the founder and managing partner of the Dead Rabbit, Jack McGarry. My man, Jack, are you feeling unstoppable today? Hey, I'm feeling very unstoppable. Yeah, I'm excited bro. to chat with you. Dude, you are unstoppable, man. <laughs> like, I've read your stories. I, I, I probably gave myself too much time to research you because yesterday's interview canceled. So I had all this free, I was in your restaurant literally all day yesterday and just being a fly on the wall. (laughs) And you're my, you're a bartender's bartender, man. And like, that's kind of like the, I think that would, I know I I won't make you agree to that statement, but I kind of feel like that's how the industry sees you. There's a lot of respect for you in this industry. Uh, Your values are amazing. Just from the the interview that I listened, I think it was tastemakers or something like that. I did an interview. And I was like, this guy and I are going to have fun. So, <laughs> and, uh, just to give uh, uh, the listeners an idea of who we're talking to, eight Tales of the Cocktails Awards, five, uh, w- sorry, five World's 50 Best Bar Awards, including World's Best Bar Twice. And the, you're also the youngest ever recipient of the International Bartender uh, Award, five cookbooks. But aside from maybe the cookbooks, this is the part I like about you the most. You don't give a fuck about all that shit. No, not that. <laughs> which is no, the best I, part, man. Yeah, Sorry, I mean, I cared, I cared when I was younger, but um, yeah, you, you, when you grow up, and I, I'm still young, obviously, but the more uh, experience you have, I'm nearly two decades in. Next yeah. year's two decades, and uh, you, uh, you just realize that it's all a pile of shit. To be honest with you, you know? right, right, and that's kind of one of the things I picked up on surrounding myself with all these amazing people. And it's when I say transform the industry, that's one of the things I think we need to transform is the yeah. culture of what it means to be successful. Yeah. You know, and I think that that's going to come out in your story. I don't want to get too far ahead, but before we really dive into who you are and how we how you got to where you are today, let's get that motivational, inspirational ball rolling with a success quarter mantra. What do you got for me? And tip that microphone down for me, real quick. Just pivot it down. Yeah, the perfect. better. Better. Yeah. Um, in terms of one that I would uh, go back to, and it sort of it goes back to what we were just talking about. It would be. Um, Teddy Roosevelt's quote, uh, comparison is the thief of joy. Oh, comparison um, is the thief of, of joy. joy. Yeah, so because I feel like in a lot of the world that a lot of us live in today with social media, instant gratification, awards, comparing yourself and wanting what others have, everybody's on their own journeys. Everybody's everybody's uh, hustling and, and grafting, yeah. So that's one that if I see, if I, I'm not exactly where I want to be or I see somebody slightly ahead of me that I, I go back to. I'm writing this one down. <laughs> Comparison is the thief of joy. I thought you were going to do the man in the arena, for a second, which is another. Oh, well, that's a fantastic. Yeah. I mean, he, he has a, he has a few stonkers in terms of motivational quotes. Dude, that's a good one. Um, I'm so happy you shared that. Cause I, lately I've been kind of public about like, even when I talk to other restaurant podcasters, I'm like, no offense, dude, or Cal, like I haven't listened to your show. Yeah. And it's because I don't want to compare myself to you. Yeah. And even on social media, I see what everyone else is doing out there. And I'm, I just instantly get up in my head and yeah. I'm like, Oh man, should I be doing that too? Or like, you know, it, it, it just, it just muckies the, the water. Yeah. A hundred percent. And it's, I mean, it's, I think again, going back to, I started in this industry when I was 15. I'm now 34. Um, 
you were I, it was very it's it was quite toxic um having that type of relationship with other people like you're constantly wanting what others have you need external validation and i think once you uh flip the script on that then you're introspective and you're you're following your sort of north star and where you want to go you can have a better relationship to looking at what other people are doing you know if i go out to bars or i see what other people are doing on social media and it's it it triggers an idea that goes back again that speaks to the north star that speaks to where you want to go then that's a healthy relationship as opposed to looking at other people and like wanting what they have or or messing messing with your head in terms of am i doing the right thing you know if you know exactly where you're going you know exactly who you are right right you know it's a completely different conversation at that point dude and what's going what i'm feeling as you're sharing this it's making me think that there is no right way to do anything there's just the best way for you a hundred percent and that's one of the things like as somebody who who started this podcast to get answers i was driving myself crazy because i was like what's the answer yeah and like (laughs) like literally it's all relative to it's it's relative to the person and there is no right way there's only the best way for you so yeah man great way to get this thing started and um where does it make sense to start sharing your story take us to the beginning so the beginning in the industry or the beginning the beginning the beginning for uh, you I guess. Uh, the or beginning the, in the industry. oh wait for yeah, the industry yeah. i was the beginning are you talking about the big bang yeah, uh, <laughs> yeah for you in the industry um, uh, but if there if it makes sense to go beyond that man take us back to where you think it makes sense yeah well i mean i think to go back to the original moment that sort of sparked my intensity and obsession and uh quest for sort of perfection or our version of that it really was uh it really was when i was 14 and i was uh i moved schools from so the schooling system is a bit different than uh europe that is in america so uh, the secondary schools are what you would go to if you haven't done well you haven't right. done well in school and that's before you you go to college but grammar schools would be if you done well and then you would move from a grammar so both schools you move to college if you the grades but grammar schools are like the elite um so i was in secondary school and moved to a grammar school because my father was a groundskeeper in in the school and uh i thought that i would just coast you know it would it would be grand and i remember uh there was a chemistry one of my first exams i think it was my first exam when I went into the grammar school ecosystem and culture, um, done the exam, didn't really think anything of it. And then it was the third period. So it was basically the period just before you had your break. And the teacher read the results from top to bottom. And uh, I came in dead, dead last. So the how the how the, the class performed from yeah. the highest score to the lowest score? The lowest score. score. So I was the lowest score uh, by quite a distance. And after that... Uh, after that class and we went to break and I remember sitting on a table and uh, sitting by myself and basically making a pact with myself at that point when I was 13, 14 years old saying that nobody would ever, I wouldn't, wouldn't give anybody the opportunity to ever say that about me again. Mm. Um, so if I'm going to do something, I'm all in. Um, if I'm going to do something that's going to be the absolute best that I can do. And uh, it was not long after that that I so back then I was constantly asking my mom and dad for a land of money, um, which was what's a land of money? A land, so L E N D, like land, yeah. a lander. Um, so asking for ten pounds or five pounds or okay. twenty pounds, just a bunch of money. Yeah, yeah, and I say land because it's ironic because there was absolutely zero intention of paying it back, and I think my mom and dad got fed up. Um, 
with me constantly because you're at that age where you're starting to want nicer things. You're trying to impress girls. Is you're that what you wanted the money for to get nicer things? Yeah, yeah. like uh, I think at that point it was to get the latest Manchester United jersey or, or something <laughs> like that. And uh, my mom turned around and said, "If you want something in in life, son, you need to go out and earn it." And um, my dad was in the room and he said that if you want to earn some money, my cousin is the his cousin, so like my second cousin ran the bar literally down the bottom of the street called the hunting lodge it was in west belfast and i went and met him and i was 15 years old and and that was basically my start so i started there and there was a bar manager um called marty tolan um and he said that the previous bar back um or glass collector as they as they were better known back then was the best he'd ever worked with and that was like a red flag to bull with me with the chemistry sort of thing that just happened the year before. So that's where it started out. So were you 14 years old with the chemistry when you got that low score? Yeah. Take Tell me, you, you kind of breezed over. You said that once hearing this, you never wanted to be at the bottom again. You made yeah. it personal. But how did it make you feel? Really take us to like that moment when you're like, why hasn't my name been mentioned yet? And then all of a sudden, it's the last one that's mentioned. Like, What were you feeling? Well, in that moment, I knew my... I knew my name was coming last. Um, <laughs> you know, I wasn't anticipating that the teacher. I mean, there's a, there's a. <laughs> I don't think that that's great teaching. Um, yeah, you know, it's a yeah, it's then. like a sh- a sh- it's a shame tactic. Mm-hmm. Um, it's not uh, that this, that sort shit, of shit. Man, it worked. Yeah, it worked. It, listen, <laughs> that's the thing. I have a paradoxical relationship with the fact that the teacher did it. Yeah. Um, so I'm thankful because it lit the fire. But that obsessiveness that perfectionism that like i don't take anything less than best in class it's it's like that that envelops blessing the, and a curse yeah it is it's okay. like because it goes towards the uh like my brain doesn't turn off mm. and i i had to like i had a, a breakdown seven seven and a half years ago with with addiction issues and, and mental health problems and i think a lot of it started because like i can trace a lot of it back to that moment because i've I've just always been striving um, to achieve, so I'm thankful for it. But I'm also I've I've like a complicated relationship um, with it, you know. Yeah, for sure. Um, so you have this new outlook where you don't where you want to be the best at everything. Yeah. You get this job. The bartender is like the person before you was the best. <laughs> so this lights a fire under your ass, essentially. We're yeah. like, oh well I'll show you. A hundred percent, yeah. Um yeah, it was like again it wasn't any high stakes, but you were you were back then the smoking ban was in place and literally what you were doing was cleaning ice trays, collecting glasses, cleaning glasses, stock stocking the bar. A bar back essentially. Yeah. Um and my whole raison d'etre at that point was to prove him wrong yeah. and, uh, and and show that I, I was the best barback ever um, or the best barback he'd ever worked with. And it was just fully, full, complete focus on pro- proving myself and proving him wrong. And, and um, once I got started into the bar world, it, it, it definitely did light a fire. Like a lot of it was that conversation with him. But it quickly went beyond that. Like the hustle and bustle of the bar industry, the... the um, the social component of it, the the chivalry, the companionship with the team, um, and it was very tangible. You know, doing a great great job in a bar or a restaurant or in your company, it's tangible. Like even what you're doing, you you can see what excellence looks like very very early. Um, so I love that 
that cult, like I love that relationship instant too. Instant gratification. You know? yes. yeah. yeah. Did you do a good job or a bad job? The guests will let you know instantly. A hundred percent. And that's it, yeah. it's it is it's intoxicating. It's also uh, it's it's really annoying. You know, I I take the customer experience extremely ex- seriously in yeah. the, in the bar. Um, I read every single review. I respond to them. I I investigate any type of issues. Um, so when you get those good ones, you feel like when you get the review that somebody has noticed all the touch points of your mm-hmm. of your strategy or your your raison d'être or your mission. It's intoxicating, but yeah. it's also maddening when you see somebody coming in. They've they've had a terrible experience. You know, I'm always like I asked you just before we started, how was your experience? And you're always like you don't know what way it's going to go. Um, but I, I have a thankfully I have a good a good relationship with it now. But it did start. When I first started in that bar in West Belfast, it was it was like I haven't really looked back. My my, fo- my point when I started in the bar industry, I I was going to go on and become a. I wanted to be a teacher and um, go back into university and stuff like that. But as soon as I started in the bar industry, it was it was off to the races. But isn't it ironic that you are a teacher? Like yeah, I'm, well, I don't know. I don't look at myself as a teacher because uh, I've I've. I mean, you can speak to the team here. I'm not, uh, and you can speak to my wife. I'm not renowned for being patient. You know, okay. I, I have a. If I show you the way and I tell you the way and I I, I walk the way and people aren't doing it, I I that's I, the standard. Yeah, I yeah. I don't uh, I don't have swimmer or is it swimmer sink? Right. Yeah. 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 But I mean, I think, but at some point you have, like, especially when you were just opening this place, you're yeah. probably hands on with most most of the staff. I would imagine oh, 100%, there's yeah. a few layers between you and training at this point because yeah. you're focused on scaling, yeah. right? But when you, but you have to be a teacher to be good at this work. Your, yeah. your job as a restaurant, or as an owner in any business, in my personal opinion, is, is to lift other people up. A hundred percent. to empower them, yeah. right? So like, well, I would say coach. I would yeah. be more um, teaching to me. It's a bit of a softer a softer world where there's um i'm a very direct communicator i'm very good at uh recognizing great performance but i'm i'm also very strong at we need to have conversations and here's what it looks like yeah i read a great book a few years ago now from uh kim kim scott radical candor and uh her whole philosophy is current personally and challenging directly and I, 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 that would be my MO. You know, I, I care about the team. I invest heavily into the team, but, um, I, I communicate, like, if I don't see, if I see something that's not right, they're going to know about it right yeah. away. And it's know? not because I want to hurt your feelings. No, it's because I want you to know the truth. Yeah. So we can grow together. Yeah. You know, and yeah, it, you're not, but you're not breaking people down. You're building them up. Right. You know, yeah. And there's, it, there's so much, you save so much time and energy with directness. Yeah. And, and setting that precedence in the beginning to say, this is how we communicate. And it's for this reason. A hundred percent. Yeah. It's super powerful. Um, so going back to your story, you were born and raised in Belfast. Yeah. You, you got your job working in this bar. Uh, you're climbing the ladder. You're, 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 you're proving to this boss that you are the best he's ever seen. Uh, you fall in love with it because you just love the instant gratification, knowing that you're doing an excellent job and getting that, that sense of approval instantly. Mm-hmm. Uh, you end up at a really amazing place. The merchant, How'd you get there? That was 2006 <laughs> to 2009. Yeah, so... How much time elapsed from you getting into... So you were 15 three years, years old? So you were 18 when yeah, you got... Wow, I started, so you yeah. started really young. Yeah. Um, so was there anything that I'm skipping over, a key lesson, a key evolution for you? Yeah, well, I mean, so the, the cousin who ran the, the Haunted Lodge, um, his, two, his two 
lessons that he imparted on me were uh, the importance of loyalty. That's to, such a badass name for yeah, a restaurant. Yeah, really I know. <laughs> it's a typical Belfast name for, yeah. for, for, for a place. But um, yeah, it was a good spot. So his whole thing was loyalty to the, to the team, loyalty to the company. And his other thing was don't steal. Um, don't steal. Don't steal. Yeah. So I had him as the general manager and then I had the... The bar manager who who said that the previous barback was was the best that he ever had. So they were two key uh, key moments. And he, because he was quite successful, he got an opportunity to run a a bar in the city centre of Belfast. So the Haunting Lodge is a and still is it's a neighbourhood bar. Um, so a lot of these bars in in, in Belfast in the in the in the outside the city centre they would have been major community type experiences because a lot of people didn't go into the city centre because of the troubles um, with the Protestant and Catholic sort of sectarian violence and stuff like that so being in the city centre would have been quite dangerous back mm-hmm. in the day but thankfully after the Good Friday Agreement in 98 that that, uh, that changed and a lot of people from both sides of the community started going into the city centre so on the back of that you started getting a lot of investment in the bars and restaurants opening in the city centre, and there was a bar that, that opened called Cafe Vaudeville, and uh, my cousin got the opportunity to become the general manager of that. That was a, a, a really, really opulent, over-the-top uh, style bar um, that, that he got the opportunity to run. And when I he asked me to join him, I followed him, I followed him around, essentially. And um, when I was in Cafe Vaudeville, that was the first time I'd seen somebody making cocktails. So these bars and... Outside the city centre, you go for pints of Guinness or, or highballs or, or stuff like that, but you're not going for, for a world-class cocktail experience, you know. So I remember seeing this bartender, uh, Kieran Breen, who was another pivotal person in in, uh, in my life at that at that point. This was Kieran, you said? Kieran. Kieran. Kieran Breen. And um, he was making a round of drinks for two couples. So you had uh, two guys and two women. And uh, the, you could just see the way he moved. He'd been trained properly um I, you'd never seen a bartender move like that before in, in belfast because most nine times out of ten they're, they're just pulling pints so we had the way he moved um he had the the two couples captivated they were mesmerized by the way that he was moving and uh these four drinks just appeared and uh he puts them in front of the couples and the couples taste them and their experience like the, the way that they responded to they responded to him the way he made them like the performance of him making these drinks and then the response to the actual drink itself, like they were absolutely blown away. The and entire experience from blew them the away. entertainment of the, yeah. the preparation to the actual experience of the drink itself. A hundred percent. And it was really at that moment. So before that moment, it was all about being the best barback. That moment when I seen that, I was like, I need to, I need to become a cocktail bartender. I need, I need to do that. And that, like I went up to him straight afterwards and I'm like, how did you do that? Talk to me. And... um I just started getting really into it. I started started buying cocktail books at that point. I started going to cocktail courses and and different bits and pieces. But I still, at that stage, I was like 15, 16. Dude, this uh, is 2006. To give the listeners some, yeah. some perspective, this is 2006. You opened Dead Rabbit in 2012. You're 18 in 2006. Yeah. You're 24 in 2012. Yeah. Like you do, when you see something and you want it, like you are I just, you have to be all in to go yeah. from that level. I was nonstop. You know, yeah. it's it's one thing. Like married now and have kids, and I, I speak to my wife, and um, you look back and you're like, I never. You look back now and you see kids. Like I, my 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 uh, sister has kids, and they're entering that sort of age that I was, and 
they're kids they're behaving like kids and uh they're going to enjoy their friends and going to concerts and stuff there was none of that for me i didn't do any of that you know it was single foot like i remember going on trips with the guys to spain yeah and I was bringing cocktail books with me, you know, while everybody else was partying and, and getting getting laid or whatever. You know, I was uh, all I cared about was cocktails. Yeah. Um, so that meeting him, and then he moved. My my cousin went to another bar, um, called in the Lisbon Road called uh, Tattoo, and uh, the, he left, but I stayed because I didn't want to keep moving around, and I I uh, I wanted to work with the guy Kieran Breen, who I met in Cafe Vaudeville. So I, he actually came and worked at Tattoo, and he was a bar manager, and uh, he sort of took me under his wing. Um, I was like 16, 17 at this point, and he really took me under his wing, showed me the cocktail industry, it brought me to connoisseurs clubs, brought me to meet the movers and shakers in Ireland. And uh, he then introduced me to Sean Muldoon, who was my business partner here. He's, he's since exited the business two years ago, but... He really laid all of the foundations for me to to succeed, and and Tattoo unfortunately closed, but Kieran went out of his way to have a meeting with Sean, um, who was then running the the bar at the Merchant Hotel, which won, it ended up winning four four or five tales of the yeah. Cocktail Awards in, in Ireland. Um, it's a beautiful looking hotel. Oh, it's stunning, absolutely yeah. beautiful, and uh, Kieran went to Sean's house and said, "Listen, this bar's closing. I'm losing my job." And Sean thought that he was going to ask him for for a job in the merchant, but he, he, Kieran said, "No, I want you to take uh, take Jack from Tattoo because if we lose, because at that point I was I was hemming and hawing about going back in the university, and and you know, it, like I wasn't, I was I was in, invigorated by cocktails, but the bar closing, it could have went either way. So and, this wasn't your career at this point in your life. You're you're not. Like this is what I want to do for the rest of my life. Yeah, because at that working in tattoo, I was already winning Ireland's best bartender. Oh wow! Um, do you know, so I was like, what more? I I just was unsure. I I I love the industry, but I wasn't I wasn't one thousand percent fully committed to f- for life. When did that happen? For you? So that happened. Kieran met Sean, and they had this dinner in the back garden of his his house, and and uh, Kieran said, "You need to hire this guy, this kid Jack," because I, I think it was I was not even 18 at this point um and and sean said like why what is it about this so i had met sean already at that point we'd we'd seen each other at like industry things um and kieran's response was if we don't if you don't hire jack your ireland is going to lose its greatest ever bartender Mm. um and i'm not saying that for ego reasons like you can speak to kieran and sean that's that's what that's what kieran said to, to sean and sean was like right leave it with me um so people didn't leave the merchant because it was the best paid job in the industry in Belfast. Um, so I ended up working, bouncing around, working in a bunch of different spots. And I don't think I understood that. that people did not leave the merchant because it wasn't the best paid? It was the best paid. So, oh, they, yeah. okay. Yeah, cool. so they, they, they got a job in the merchant because it was the first bar in the city center that charged service charge for everything. Okay. So you're, like, the way you're, we have tips here. That was the only bar in Belfast that sort of had that same model. So you were making your your normal early rate plus the tips, which was unheard of back home. Um, so because of that, people didn't leave. So when Kieran said to Sean, "You need to hire Jack," there wasn't a job for me. Yeah, he had to wait until somebody left, which took it ended up taking like six or seven months. Wow. Um, so I just ended up bouncing around bars downtown. Um, it's a good way to get perspective, though. You yeah. want, it's good. It's good. Yeah. To, I think it's everyone. You want to offer yourself that perspective in the oh. industry because you might 
I don't know. Like, like there's only one, there is no one way to do anything. There's just the right way for you. Yeah. So getting that perspective helps you kind of craft your own. A hundred percent. A hundred percent. Um, so yeah, they came around, um, and offered me the job in December of 20, 2005. Um, and I was hemming and hawing. It was because I was working in a bar called the Apartment in Belfast, and it was a high volume cocktail bar. I was working with a lot of friends. You know, I was starting to enjoy it, so I, w- I wasn't sure. Um, so I I didn't fully commit to joining the merchant. I was also nervous because the merchant I knew the merchant was a, was was the bar in Ireland. It, it was already winning all the local awards all over Ireland, and it was winning UK awards. Wow. Um, so I knew I knew you were go- you were going from a you were going from being the big the big dog in in the apartment to being the small dog in the merchant and you're going to get your you're going to be really tested so i i was like i wasn't sure if that was the case and uh sean said listen i'm going to keep this job open all throughout december so this is christmas time um i'm going to go into the christmas period without a bar like with with one bartender down and then he came to me in january and he said right i need you to either commit or, or not commit and I, I said, right, I'm ready. And then I came around to the merchant. I had a meeting with him um, at table one in, in the Merchant Hotel cocktail bar. And he basically showed me two pieces of ice. So one piece of ice was perfectly clear and perfectly cut. So it was a cube, and a highball cube that you could see straight through, beautifully cut. Um, that That is a prerequisite in cocktail bars nowadays. But back then, that like yeah, two, you're talking 2006, that's, yeah. that was not normal. Yeah. Um, and then he, he had another piece of ice, which was a normal cube from, from an ice machine. It was jagged and it had uh, imperfections cloudy. in it. Yeah, cloudy, not, just not great. And he said, listen, there's two types of people in this world. There's people that do this this way, like perfection, chase perfection. Or there's people that don't care. You, if you work here, you're going to be this person in terms of the, the perfect cube um, going like going fully in. And, and that's really when I realized that I'd met a kindred spirit there in terms of this is somebody that wants to, to chase us to the, to the very end. So I, uh, I joined two weeks later, and that was the start of that whole adventure with, with the merchant. Beautiful. Was there a struggle with the merchant? Was it like you just walked right in and you're still the best bartender in Ireland? Like, I got this, no issues? Or like did, was there like a challenge once you got there? Oh, I mean, it was incredibly challenging. What was, um, the, str- what was the struggle for you? So... I I knew as soon as I started, like, I there was when I started there was there was a lot of uh, talk in the Irish bartending scene about this young bartender that like so I was walking in with an already people already knew who I was in, in the cocktail scene in Ireland. Um, so the pressure, not real. I was there was because I was eighteen. I was completely fear. I I had no fear. Mm-hmm. Um, so I went in. I was nervous. I was nervous the first shift. Um, but within, I'd say within a week or two, I was like, right, I know what, like, wow. I'm gonna, I'm gonna, I'm gonna get after this. But the biggest challenge would be the the knowledge base. You know, Sean basically opened the door in terms of like, I, at that point, I wouldn't been reading books from like Ben Reed, like entry level bartender books, where Sean was very like, you need to speak to Dave Wondridge, you need to speak to Dale DeGroff, you need yeah. to, sp- you need to speak to the, yeah, the guys, yeah. guys Regan and. Audrey Saunders and Dale's Sasha. on my radar. I'd yeah. love to get him on the show. He's oh, Dale's the best. York, yeah, he? he is. Yeah, yeah. yeah. He's yeah. somebody you should definitely speak to. All right. Um, yeah, I can connect you guys after. His, I mean, he's 
He's a godfather, you know. He's where it all started. Yeah. Um, I, so, I feel like I got to get through a couple of these books before I have them. Yeah. So, so the challenge was just drinking from a fire hose yeah. of, of information. A hundred percent. How did you overcome it? It, you know, it actually feels a bit. There's that scene in the um, in the Matrix where like Neo gets plugged in, and it's like all that. It's just completely overloaded with the, yeah. with the code. That's what it felt like. Um, you know, so it was like it was really like that for the first couple of months until I uh, I started to settle, mm. um, and then Sean realized like I was I'm a sponge. You know, as soon as I'm exposed to it, as soon as I see it once, it's there, it's done. Um, and as I said, I was eighteen. I did not do it. Like there was there was uh, all my friends had the the the, the latest pin up model on their walls. I had pictures of Dale and and. Like Charles Vaxant and bit like uh, Rich Hunt, the, the best bartenders in, in the world at that stage, because that that's where I wanted to go. He gave me the space to 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 chase that, you know, to to make the mistakes, to 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 fail forward. Um, and it was re- that's really all it was, you know. I, I within a couple of months, I had the command of of behind the bar because Sean was never really a, a bartender per se; he was a, a like an operator or a, a leader. Um, so I sort of assumed the leadership behind the bar, completely revamped the the way that we did things and the recipes. And when the likes of we had this thing called the Connoisseurs Club, where the best in the industry all over the world were flying into Belfast to talk to the the local consumers. But after they'd done their sessions and, and workshops, they sat with me. Like I remember sitting with Audrey Saunders until like four or five o'clock in the morning. When the when the breakfast team were coming in to start to set up for the for the the breakfast service for the hotel guests, and we were there, we t- we were making. I think at that point we were making a Brooklyn, and we made it about forty or fifty times. Yeah. You know, so my exposure, my exposure to absolute elite level people in the industry was second to none. So it wasn't just Sean that was teaching me. I was learning with like again, Audrey, Sasha, Tony Canigliaro, Dale DeGroff, Gaz Regan, like you name them. They yeah. came through the bar, and what I was, was that having, like when you first met these people that were pinned up on your walls? It, it went, you know, in your teens. I mean, it was nuts, completely nuts. Um, you know, I, I go in the bars now, and uh, you order drinks, and you see the the shaky hands, um, and it's. It, it, I'm an anxious person, so when I see it, I, I feel like saying to the person, "Can you stop? Because you're making me anxious." But <laughs> yeah, that's, that's going to have the adverse, a complete yeah. adverse. Uh, res- re- result, but back then, not I was that bartender. Do you know, I was. Uh, but uh, do you know, they they essentially hold your hand and say, "Listen, like we're all just making cocktails right. here, but I, I, like show show me the way." And they all loved my. Uh, they all loved my obsessiveness. They all they knew like when I first met Dave uh, Wandridge, I had in Bibe, and every single page was marked. Like there was dog dog ear. There was. Uh, indexes on it, and he he's seen it. And he's like Jesus. I've never seen, I've never <laughs> seen a book like like the, his book marked like that. You know, so they all seen that I was so ambitious, so driven, so uh, so uh, obsessive. So I mean, it was phenomenal. You know, it was nerve wracking when they came in. You're stressed out. You're in the bar the yeah. whole week before, making sure every single dude, piece of the bar is spotless. And yeah. you know, dude, I'm loving this, man. And but what's going through my mind right now is just the power of the. The, the, the surrounding yourself with the right people. Oh, 100%. And once you can break through and yeah. get to the point where you're in the same room as these people, and if you have it, if the desire is there and you want it, yeah. and it's evident, it's clear that you're going places, that shit's like rocket fuel. 100%. They are I can't gonna, agree with anymore. Yeah, they're going to 
connect you to whoever that's what happens yeah you know and i think that's honestly like i i kind of beat up on like the like going to culinary school today and like how i don't really think it's a good investment but if there is one benefit of going to culinary school is if you have that piss and vinegar inside of you and you want it those professors are gonna leapfrog you a hundred percent to the right to the right places yeah. and these were your professors yeah these were the masters of the trade the people who are like this guy's going somewhere yeah. and they're gonna literally dump rocket fuel on you yeah. and let you on fire man you're gonna take off and that's listen that's what happened yeah. um you know so it's like that that tutelage that i had I just don't think at that at that period of the industry, and even where we are now, nobody would have got nobody gets that now. Um, like you can be in these bar conferences, and but back then the the scene was so it was so uh, it was so formative. It wasn't this big industry like that we have now. It's huge. You've thirty thousand people going to tales of the cocktail. Back then it was it was much much smaller. Um, so I mean, I you, you're right. You uh, create your own luck with with the way that you show up, but. Um, yeah, I was very fortunate that that was the time where I where I came through. Do you know, it was I, I, if I came through now. Uh, listen, I'm confident in my own ability, but I'm very glad I came through the period that I that I came through. And you know, yeah, man, uh, I'm loving this. Um, I think now is a good time. Actually, actually, is there anything else you did go? Actually, now is a good time to take the break. Think our sponsors. We'll be right back, and we'll start to talk about why you you chose to come to to the states. This episode is brought to you by Pop Menu. There are a lot of elements to consider when growing your restaurant. Are you connecting with your diners enough and with the right message, or could your kitchen put out more orders than your dining area has room for? It can be a lot and very overwhelming when you got into this business for the food and the people. And that's why restaurants get pop menu. Pop menu is the restaurant technology designed to make growing your restaurant easy with pop menu. You can attract more guests to your website. That's designed to easily collect their contact info and data. So you can see what your guests love and why they dine with you with pop menu. You can also stay top of mind and build authentic relationships with guests by using modern Modern technology that drives new and repeat business. And also, Pop Menu lets you make all your systems work better together, improve margins, and conquer the chaos of restaurants' digital presence. Pop Menu, technology for restaurants ready to grow. If you are a restaurant unstoppable listener, you can get $100 off your first month, plus lock in one unchanging monthly rate at Pop menu.com slash unstoppable go now to get $100 off your first month at pop menu.com slash unstoppable recently on the show you've been hearing it come up often restaurant systems pro if you've become interested i highly recommend you sign up for the restaurant system pro 60 day pilot program this is something that's never been done before this 60 day event is at no cost to you but it's not for everyone Fred Langley, CEO of Restaurant Systems Pro, will be leading a group of restaurateurs through the Restaurant Systems Pro software and setting up the system for your restaurant. Fred will be leading the training, supporting you, and holding you accountable. Typically, this costs $10,000 a month to have Fred in your restaurant, but during this no-cost-to-you 60-day training, he will be teaching you every process he does during the group coaching sessions, and nothing will be held back. During the 60 days, Fred will walk you through the Restaurant Systems Pro process and help you crush the following goals. 
recipe costing cards, guidance in your books for accounting, cash control, sales forecasting with accuracy, checklist, budgeting for the entire year, scheduling for profit, more butts in seats, and that's not it. Often, the team at Restaurant Systems Pro helps restaurateurs out pro bono because their hearts go out to these folks. I mean, it's hard out there, but because of that, a lot of the time, these restaurateurs don't follow through because they have no skin in the game. For that reason, there is an application process. Only those serious about making change in their operation will be accepted into this program. Are you interested? Then go to restaurantunstoppable.com slash RSP. That's RSP for Restaurant Systems Pro. RestaurantUnstoppable.com slash RSP. We're back. And um, I want to focus on the evolution of the Dead Rabbit and where you are today and uh, where you're headed. Because I think there's such a wealth of knowledge you can probably depart on myself and my listeners. But I don't want to skip over anything key. So um, you, you're at you're in Belfast. You're working at The Merchant. You, you're there from 06 to 09. And in 09, you find yourself in New York City. Yeah. What happened? Like, like just take us like, like, like fast forward. You're zooming 30,000 feet in a jet and just tell us like, like what's going on below you as you're flying. through. Yeah. So, I mean, it all moved, it all happened very fast. Um, so started, as you said, in 2006, um, got stronger and became, became a hell of a lot better, um, throughout my time there. And then we had won every single local award, every single UK award, and that's when we started to shift our attention to the global awards, and and uh, that was uh, you, back in those times. That's when Tales of the Cocktail were just starting. Yeah. Um. So in two thousand six, two thousand and uh, going into two thousand seven, it was only New York bars that won it. So you'd Pegu Club, you'd uh, Milk and Honey, um, and it was it became me and Sean's raison d'être, our, our our north star to win Tales of the Cocktail awards, and we got nominated. Like, we were bringing all of these judges over. They seen what we were doing. Everybody was talking about the bar. But in 2007, we were nominated for three. We lost every single one. Um, and that was that was a crushing loss um, because we genuinely believed that what we were doing was incredibly special. And the lengths that we went to, you know, we were making we were making our own ice in Belfast. We were making our own syrups. We were juicing everything. We went all in. And we lost all three, and we went up to the, the 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 president essentially of Tales of the Cocktail on the spirit side and said, "Why do we lo- why do we lose? Like, tell us how we can improve and, and come back stronger." Do you and, remember what he told you? Yeah, so he said, uh, "So the Connoisseurs Club up until that point, again, this was this, this Paul Tunerman at the time." No, so this was Simon Difford. Okay. Um, so Simon Difford from Class Magazine. So uh, Paul and Anne owned it at, at that stage, as, as you know, but they did not adjudicate this, the, the award side. They had nothing yeah. to do with that, at least as far as, as far as I know. So we went up to, and asked Simon, what do we do to be in the conversation or, or how do we come back stronger? And he was like, you guys are doing a great job of bringing European and UK uh, luminaries to the bar with the Connoisseurs Club. Like we were bringing over... Ian Burrell, uh, you had Stanislav Vardner, you had, uh, you had all those sort of big key industry people in the UK and Europe, but they did not vote for the, like they were not the American, so the American, we didn't have the Americans over, so he was like, look at the Irish coffee story. The Irish coffee was invented in, in Ireland, sure. I but was, it, uh, yeah, sorry, keep going. Yeah, keep it, going. but it was uh, it was I'm made famous right <laughs> in America. Yeah. Um, so he was like, you need to bring, you either need to do one of two things, 
you need to bring your bar to the judges or you need to bring the judges to your bar. You need a politic. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah. And listen, this is before, like now it's so normal to pop up in places and guest bartenders and these seminars and stuff. This None of this shit was happening back then. It's, this was all brand new. Um, so it was really after the, he said that we were like, right, we're only bringing American judges, literally judges. Like we went after the judges and said, you're coming over to do a, a session in the bar. So at that point, it shifted to Dale DeGroff, Gary Reagan, Audrey Saunders, Sasha Petrosky, Jeff Barry, Wayne Curtis. All of them were judges. Um, and what we believed is if we got them into the bar, we showed them what they did, what we did, and that, and that network that you were talking about, they would they would create momentum for us. They would go back and say, these guys are absolutely crushing. You need to go. You need to check it out. And the very next year after we did that, we won all three. Um, but it was during that time. So obviously that was a big thing. It was during that time that a guy called Connor Allen appeared on our scene. So we were at the top of the world in terms of we had won three awards. The, a lot of people at that at that time were calling calling our story the, the sort of slumdog, slumdog millionaire story because we were the first bar ever outside of America to win Tales of the Cocktail Awards, you know, like World's Best This and World's Best That, and that was during the time where Slim Dog, Slum Dog Millionaire won like three or four awards at the Oscars. Um, so this guy appeared and he loved what we were doing. He traveled all over the world with his company. He got into the cocktail scene. He actually got into cocktails coming to the Merchant Hotel, coming to the bar, and because of his travel, we connected him. He went to t- Tokyo and we, we said, you need to see Yuan san he went to Prague. We were like, you need to see Stanislav Wardner. He went to San Francisco. We were like, you need to see Julio Bermejo. Um, and he he's seen every pretty much every great cocktail bar in the world. And his belief was that what we were doing in Belfast was incredibly special. And obviously, there's a bias there because he's Irish. We're yeah. Irish, you know. So, like, I get, I get that. But his whole thing was um, his company was just brought over by the stock exchange. And uh, he was moving to New York and he was like, you guys should bring what you do in Belfast to, to New York. And it was during that time, literally at that exact time that the bar then, so we won three one year. The next year we won World's Best Bar. The first bar, again, the first bar ever that was not in New York to win a World's Best Cocktail Bar Award. And well, You were there so, when that happened. Yeah, was I, that was, like? I was... Uh, I mean, I, <laughs> I wasn't even old enough to get in the fucking casino, <laughs> you know. Um, so I, I didn't even get the chance to get on to the award stage. But um, I was in my hotel room and I was absolutely bouncing all over the place. And um, thankfully, when the awards finished, that's when I was able to join the party. But um, was it twenty one to gamble? Twenty one to get in the casinos. Yeah. I think at that stage I was maybe nineteen twenty. Okay. Um, so I mean, it was incredible. But as soon as then we got back, then then the conversation like we handed our notice in. Um, and we were like, right, we're going to we're going to do this. And the only thing he said to us was, "Don't build a bar that's going to be here today and gone tomorrow. Build a bar, build a hundred year bar, build an institution." Um, and that's really what was the catalyst behind bringing uh, the Irish pub scene together with the cocktail scene. Because up until that point, you had the 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 cocktail scene was really defined by speakeasies and five star hotel bars. So there was a pretentiousness about that. There was rules and regulations. Um, where we loved, like we were Irish, we come from yeah. like a, a egalitarian, democratized space in the pub. So we wanted to make cocktails not pretentious. We wanted to make cocktails fun. We wanted to we wanted to bring together those two things, 
and that was a catalyst for the dead rabbit the dead rabbit story you know yeah man uh so you you come to the states in 2009 you yeah. didn't land in in new york and open the dead rabbit you <laughs> i had, wish yeah. yeah like what like what you get here what was the strategy to get open yeah so as soon as we put even before we put our notice in as soon as he said build this bar that that won't be here today and gone tomorrow and we settled on irish pub cocktail bring it together then it became about how do we actually make this because you can't just open a pub in a cocktail bar and call it McGarry's and and it fucking <laughs> it, it makes sense. you have it has to make sense strategically conceptually so that's really where we started researching the the confluence of the of the irish immigrant and the cocktail movement because we knew that obviously with the great hunger in the 19th century millions of irish immigrants were arriving to the shores of america um and we also knew that back in and during that time you had the the basically the the advent of the first golden era of the cocktail movement you know you had the first luxury hotels you had the first celebrity bartenders like Orson Miss Willard, Shed Sterling, Harry Johnson, Jerry Thomas. Um, this is the late 19th century, right? This yeah, this around. be middle of the 19th century, middle yeah. to the end. 1850s. Yeah, 1850s onwards, yeah. particularly towards the end. Yeah. Um, so during that 50-year span from eight, middle of the 19th century onwards, we knew that those two things were, were happening in New York City. And that's where we really started to figure out how can we. So you have you have this this culture of cocktails evolving for the first time. Bitters are being made, yeah. and this like this. The um, have you ever read the book America Walks Into a Bar? Yeah, that's a fantastic, dude. Book. It's yeah. such a good that's book. Fantastic. Oh book. my god! But they get into a lot of this in that book. The other one, if you haven't, have you heard of uh, Drunk? Uh, Edward Slingerland is the author. I don't think I've Dude, read that one. It's an anthropological yeah. approach to alcohol over human existence. Oh, I'll have to add that it's to the reading list. It's so yeah. fascinating. I'll introduce you to Edward because yeah. I'm trying to get the word out about his book. Amazing, too. amazing. You could be a good evangelist for him. But um, anyway, like they get into a lot of like the history of alcohol over time. Yeah. And not just the history of alcohol, but its influence on humanity, which is really cool. Um, so if you guys are interested in this era that Jack is talking about right now, pick up those books as they get into it. It's 100%. stuff. So keep going. Yeah, so it was really figuring out how... So we knew that those two movements were happening. So the Irish influx into America, the, the advent of the cocktail movement. And uh, we moved over to, to, to New York and the research intensified, intensified rapidly. We knew that the bar, we wanted to call the bar the Dead Rabbit because... Uh, we wanted a name that that spoke to like Irish pub culture. Do you know we have a lot of bars like the the Lamb and the Hen or the Chick. Like there's all those types of names, and uh, so we didn't want it to be like a, a like a weird geeky name or a name uh, named after a cocktail or something like that. You know, just that's not what, what what the strategy was. So we had the name, and we landed and we started researching the confluence of those two eras. So we with with more research and and bugging people like. Dave Ondridge, on like unbelievably bugging him. Um, we really understood that the immigrant, like the the immigrants were were landing, and they populated Water Street in the Five Points, and then the lux the luxury hotels and the sporting men's cocktail lounges, as they were known back then, would have been on uh, Broadway. So you really had these two worlds coexisting. You had the squalor of Water Street. Uh, Charles Dickens famously co- uh, called it the most dangerous and violent street. It's crazy how it con- turned into being like the wa- like Water Street is like now like Wall Street. I know, yeah, yeah. yeah it's crazy. Um, so yeah, we the bar the types of bars that would have been uh, dominating that street would have been like McSorley's. Um, so saw- sawdust strewn floors, very boisterous, 
tap rooms, beer, whiskey, you know, like immigrant filled taverns. Um, and then coexisting with that, you had the, the, the cocktail movement, the, the, the cocktail bars. So we had our pub and we had our cocktail movement coexisting in the same downtown area. And then we came across this building, which sort of anchors like Broadway is just literally a couple of streets away. We're on Water Street. This building was built in 1828. Nice. It all started to come together. And then the the one-time leader of the Dead Rabbit, John Morrissey, who's our sort of ma- mascot, he enveloped both of those years. Um, so he arrived from Ireland um, when he was three years old. He ended up coming to New York when he was 18. Um, started uh, running rackets on, on Water Street. Um, he became a uh, he became, he ended up moving to San Francisco during the gold rush. Got involved with uh, running gambling saloons. Came back, befriended Jerry Thomas, opened bars with Jerry Thomas. Became a senator, became a congressperson. Founded Saratoga Racetrack. Uh, was a one-time leader of the Dead Rabbit. Died. All, he achieved all of this, uh, and he died at forty-eight. Um, so he he brought together. He lived the pub. He lived the higher end society. On, <laughs> unreal, unreal. Um, they like the 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 Irish story, or the like the Irish story and the American dream. So that's like John Morrissey was the linchpin of bringing these two things together. And then we found this site, and that's really where we were like, right, we have our, we're going to have a pub on the first floor, which we call our top room. We're going to have a cocktail bar on our second floor, which we're going to call the parlor, and then the third floor, which we're sitting in, is our occasional room. And we opened in uh, February twelfth of two thousand and thirteen. So we're as you as you alluded to previously, we're we're in our tenth our tenth year of uh, of operations. You know, so it hasn't it hasn't really uh, stopped since since we since we started. Dude, that's that's wild. And the, what I want to pull out for the listeners is this idea of like not just opening a restaurant for the sake of opening one or a bar for that matter. Um, <laughs> But really, like getting intentional and, and and having it strike a chord, and having there be a story, and pulling in history, and literally having a story of of what happened and how this this space is a tribute to what was happening in this time, and 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 having it being close to you, hundred percent, you know, and the people behind it, and when you when you really take the time to be intentional and tell a story, and not just sling cocktails, but to educate people, and I think that's the other cool thing that we really haven't gotten into yet. You weren't just like giving people cocktails, like you're. Not just not only is there a story behind the bar, right? But there's also a story behind every drink. There's a story. Honestly, there's a story behind every single thing we do. Yeah. Um, Get I, us into I, the power of story. Yeah, I mean, Irish people are renowned for being story storytellers. You know, our storyteller um, back home is it's called the Shanaki, Um and it's a big part of our culture. You know, people. The pub back home is is the community center. It's the it's the hub. Do you know, you've the uh, another fantastic book, uh, the the Great Good Place um, by Ray Oldenburg. It talks about the first place being the home place, the second place being the workplace. Now, obviously, with the pandemic, those two things have sort of blurred. But then the third place is somewhere where you go to get rejuvenated or restored. And for some people, that's that's a gym or the church or or. or or whatever, but for a lot of us, it's it's the pub, right. it's the bar, it's right. the cafe, it's the it's restaurant. So they it's get, usually they, important. They get into that, and the America walks into a bar. Yeah, like, literally, when they were settling the uh, you know the Americas, like or at least North America, the United States, you couldn't start a town 
without first establishing a pub. Yeah. It was a public house. <laughs> like it was before a post office. It was before the church. It was like, you want to start a town? Well, okay, put a pub in. Yes. Yeah, hundred percent. I mean, it was called a public house then I think yeah. and over time. It yeah, it just got pub. shortened to pub. Yeah. Yeah. But that's where everything happened. That was this, that was like the, the town office. Yeah. That's where the meetings were held. That's where the politics were. That's where you got your news. That's where that was social media. Yeah. That was the, 100%. the internet was the pub. A hundred percent. And, and the, the, the Shanaki culture, like goes back directly to what you're saying. It's stories. Do you know, yeah. you go to the space and it's, it's maybe it's a political story or it's a family story or you're like all the stories happen in that environment. Oh God, I wish I was alive. Batman. I know it would have been so, like, <laughs> it would have been so good. But, um, yeah, so with the bar, that's like we're a nation of storytellers and creatives, and um, we really wanted to capture that spirit with with the bar. You know, we didn't want to just open a space. We didn't want to open a bar and just have a fucking pub and a cocktail bar. It needed to make sense. There needed to be a story, um, and it's the same with even the cocktails that we serve, the art on the wall, the music that you hear, the soap in the bathrooms, the stool that you're sitting on. Everything has to have a story. You're not going to tell everybody every like if you come in and it's a, it's a it's a fucking Tinder date. You're not going to sit and, and wax lyrical about why you've done everything. But if for people who want to scratch below the surface, we're extremely intentional about everything that we do at the bar. Yeah. So it's easy to say everything has to have a story. Yeah. And it's it's not as easy to make the story. But what's hard is making sure everybody that you employ knows the story. Yep. Absolutely. How do you do that? So in, that in and of itself has evolved throughout the years too. When we opened, we had the. I, I remember people calling the the team that we opened with, particularly in the in the second floor cocktail bar, the the sort of Harlem Globetrotters of the of the bartending scene. You know, we had really famous bartenders working alongside me as we as we opened the the, the cocktail bar, and I was. 21 22 yeah um, i was gonna say how like how like you how old are you do you mommy tw- i think it was 22 when we opened the bar that's crazy um 22 yeah i think 20 20 no sorry 23 because it took us two years to get the bar open so because i won the award when i was 23 people started saying the name jack mcgarry you gotta go check th- talk to jack mcgarry i'm expecting to like see like this old seasoned <laughs> bar, like, guy who spent his life in bars i'm like is this the right i i'm I, like did i spell this right like you're a young looking dude you know like you know, i what? do i appreciate the comment i don't feel young but um well, how, yeah 20 what? years in this industry is like right. f- it's like 15 well, 32, any other one. 33 i'm 34 now yeah I mean, um, you're still a young guy but yeah i mean you're pretty well established pretty well accomplished for your you know what you've done man yeah. 22 years old opening a bar in downtown or in like in manhattan or in that was hardcore yeah man. hardcore um we kind of skipped over milk and honey yes yeah yeah i went to milk and honey um for a year before i moved to america was that an evolutionary point for you or was it just a place to land and get cash um like well i thought i thought it was the latter um and I went over, obviously being the the head bartender, senior bartender of the Merchant Cocktail Bar. When we had won World's Best Did you say Bar, you winked over. No, we won. Oh. We won. <laughs> I was uh, like, no, so we had won the we had won the award. My accent is very thick. <laughs> no, I love it, man. I'm sorry, I keep on asking you to repeat things. I just want to make sure I'm understanding. Um, so Sean moved out first um, to America, but we both put our notice in at the same time because, frankly, the hotel we were getting to a point where we were referring to the hotel as a cocktail bar with rooms. Obviously, the hotel weren't delighted with it, um, and there, the hotel was becoming a lot more corporate. They'd added a big extension to the back, and there was a lot of titles and people telling us what to do and that type of stuff. And like I'm, I was, I, I'm still young, but back then I was really raw, yeah, uh, North Belfast 
fella um, who had a dislike for any authority. Mm. Um, so it was time when I, I knew if Sean was leaving and I was ultimately joining him, I knew if I if I had been there by myself, my life would have been made an absolute hell. So I was like, I'll take a year, I'll leave the same time, and I'll go and work in London, just make a make a bit of money and and keep taking over. But and I thankfully I got the opportunity to work in. Milk and honey, but when I started there, it was a huge learning curve because I came in as this in my head, like head bartender of the merchant. We've just won Moore's Best Bar. I, I'm going to show you guys, I'm going to teach you guys. Um, and I rocked in my first shift, and you're, I was, I was told as soon as I walked in, you're shit, and uh, <sighs> you're going to start, you're going to, we don't give a fuck about what way you do. How did you receive that? I actually, I've, I mean, <laughs> it was. In a way, it was liberating because I had all of these expectations and responsibilities running the bar in, the, in, in Belfast and the merchant. Um, but when you're told that, you're like, it just brought me right back to that uh, time with the, the bar manager about the bar back. Do you know, it brought me right oh, back right. to that. Like, I'll fucking yeah, show I mean, you. I'm like, like, watch, like, watch me work. I got to um, work harder. You're already yeah. labeled, you know, best bartender or you're the head of the, of, of the merchant, right? You hadn't won best bartender. No, point. but I'd be like back then you would have had, I mean, there's still big magazines, but the likes of class magazine and uh, you had in vibe and stuff and they done the, like the 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 hot shots, the young the the, the next up and comers. I I was really well known in the UK scene at that point. Like I was I was I came through the same time as a guy called Ren uh, Shetty, who is from the Dandelion and the Lioness team, and it was me and him that were being mentioned and everything. So I came in with a reputation, um, but they they didn't give a fuck about about that. And uh, so why were they saying you were shit? Was what were you doing that they didn't like? Well, the the milk and honey has a very uh, a very strict way of working. So uh, I think this came from, so Saisha is obviously a part of this, but particularly the Milk and Honey London iteration, they created a uh, methodology called round building. Um, and it's all about not, so you're built, they, uh, I was great back then. It was, I'll make one cocktail at a time. And if you came in with four or five people, that's maybe fucking 15, 20 minutes. Um, where in Milk and Honey, the whole philosophy was, you do not build a drink at a time. You build a round at a time, and you you put you you execute. Or you, if somebody orders three drinks, six drinks, ten drinks, you're making that full round. You're not picking a bottle up more than once. If so, say there's five lime juice or three bitters of the same. You're building the whole round simultaneously, and then you're serving them the way that the ice reacts. So if you're if you're serving a drink up without ice, like a Manhattan, that gets that gets poured off at the end. But if you're serving a drink up. You, you make that first, you know, so there's a whole strict methodology around it. There's so it's actually, about throughput and efficiency yeah, and getting yeah. drinks out to make the most money possible with the fewest amount of movements. Exactly. Um, ergonomics. So yeah. is that ergonomics? I, or yeah. So I, I came from a, like a an, an artist and historical perspective, um, you know, where they came from a completely different, like it was obviously Rent everything. New York's expensive. We got yeah. ourselves majoring. A hundred percent. Well, it was in London. I worked in the milk and honey yeah. in London. And, um, yeah, so that was a big shock to the system. It took, it honestly took me three months to get used to that way of working. And then one shift, it was like, I just kept saying, I'm shit, I'm shit, I'm shit. I'd lost all my confidence. And then one shift, it just clicked. Wow. Um, and I was able to build, like, if there was ticket, I couldn't take enough tickets when the tickets were coming through the printer. It was like, give me, give me the tickets. Cause but in the merchant, I was an incredibly slow bartender. It took me... Like, there was a guy from Poland who worked beside me. For every one of my drinks, he made, like, fucking six. 
Um, whereas in, in Milk and Honey, I took that level of performance and art and history and stuff like that and shaped it all around the inefficiency. So wow. it, I just, it was, it was, it was magic. You know, I yeah. felt at that point then that's when I was like, right, I'm, I'm invincible. Like I, I felt like I was at peak level bartending and then that's when I moved to to New York and then there was another shock in my system when I first came to New York because in London Europe and, and Ireland cocktail bartenders are all head down they're, they're looking at their tins they're looking at the ice well um, whereas and I, I'm one of the first bartenders I ever seen in New York that, that Sean took me to see was Doug Quinn who ran uh, the bar at Clark's uh, PJ Clark's okay, and um, he was a real famous bartender back then, not for cocktails, but f- as a bartender. And I walked in, and the guy just had the complete control of the room. His eyes were up. It was names, names, names all over. People I love walking how you in. Dis- dis- discern between not for being for making cocktails, but for being a bartender. Yeah, hundred percent. I think it's imp- what do you mean by that? For those who didn't really pick up on what, what do you mean? What is the difference between someone who makes cocktails and a bartender? So a cocktail bartender is somebody that just makes cocktails and they're not like they're, they, it's, you go, it's, and this is still quite pervasive now. You see this a lot in the high end cocktail bars. The cocktail bartenders will make you feel like you're doing, they're doing, you're, you're doing, uh, they're doing you a favor, you know, like you should be so lucky that I'm serving you type thing. Um, which is an absolute crock of shit, you know, um, there's a, there's such a level of pretentiousness about it. Um, another name is barman. You know, being a barman, yeah. Um, but it's just the idea of like of you're there to provide a service. You're, you're also you're, you're a, a therapist. You're paying yeah. attention. You're you're entertaining. You're uh, you're connecting people at the bar, and you know you're you're kind of orchestrating the experience, almost like a host. Exactly. So that's the distinction for me when I came to New York. That's when I really understood that bartender. So you can be a cocktail person, or you can be a bartender. When I seen Doug Quinn working that night. I'm like I want to take I want to take the, the 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 mad obsessive detail that I have with cocktails and the history that I developed in the merchant. I want to take the efficiency that I learned in milk and honey, and then I want to use the vehicle of this New York style of bartending, where it's looking in your eyes, it's managing the room, it's seeing the room. Do you know, everybody walks in, hello, how you doing? Uh, walking out, goodbye when they're coming in, guiding their experience. It's the hospitality. You know, that's the host- why I go to a bar. Yeah, exactly. That's, that's exactly, I mean, and it's why most Americans go to bars. You right. know, what's that's and there's, so there's just a big juxtaposition between, and thankfully that's changing a bit. But there's a huge difference between American, like um, Americans love going to the bar, and and sitting in front of a bartender. And in Europe, it's 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 not the same way. You know, there's there's a big there's a it's big difference. Or, yeah, there's you go in, you sit at a table. You know, there's not there's not the same emphasis on the bartender. Mm-hmm. You know. Um, and you can get away with that. You can get away with just being a great cocktail maker. In New York, you, you cannot get away with that. Do you know, yeah. but when I when we opened up the bar, it's like God, these people like they're just coming in and they're on you. The customers they want your they want your guidance, they want your attention, they want you to to shape I'm so their experience. I, no, but I love it. I loved it. <laughs> you know, it's it's uh, it really. So it was that real trifecta of taking the pieces that I learned in the merchant, taking the pieces that I learned in milk and honey. And then wrapping it with New York, you know that that delivery, the 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 heads up bartender, um, and that's what made me like 
we opened the bar three months later. I won. I won. We, I won the award, and the bar won the awards. And so I was. I was under the impression. I don't know why I thought milk and honey. What, was there a milk and honey in New York? There was. So the original okay. milk and honey was in, in New York. Okay. Yes, yeah. but there was one that opened in Belfast, and that's where you were. There was one that opened in London. Oh, London. In London, because I moved to London for I, just under a year before I came to New got York. Got it. Got it. Yeah. So when you came to New York, you did kind of land in New York and just open. And like you, no, we was, still had about another year. But w- like when you came, was it like? What were you doing when you got here? Was it working at other places, or yeah. were you working on opening this place? Both. It takes about a year to open a restaurant. Yeah, both. So we, oh, I started working in a bar in Chelsea called Bathtub Gin that some of our business partners own. Um, and all, so that was, I did that four That's nights right. a week, five nights a week. And uh, that was mad, intense volume. Do you know, I wouldn't say it's a great cocktail bar per se, but it, it does good quality drinks, and they were doing thousands of drinks a week wow. unbelievable volume so, so how did you grow here huh how did you do grow here how did this help influence you becoming a better barman when you open your own place it's i mean really it's about that experience before we opened was so at using bathtub gin it's to, again it's economizing the art it's scaling the art it's systemizing the art so i really learned then about the way that new yorkers drink how quickly they drink um, how to do it consistently th- yeah exactly yeah. so all of those things that really tested my my bandwidth um but i mean I, I got on top of it and then in new york broadly in terms of dead rabbit it was meeting the reps meeting the movers and the shakers we went in every single cocktail bar i we wanted to know who Research. was who what was what what our competition was um you know so it was that whole period was incredibly important and we were dormant like you know everybody's like what what are sean and jack doing because we went from like the summit of mount everest and then we disappeared even when i worked at milk and honey i was very like i was under the radar um so we disappeared really for a year and a half two years and then the the but during that whole time we're we're pushing the dead rabbit we're we're talking about the dead rabbit so this is your first time i mean what what was your team like so i mean it sounds like the 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 path you took was you know you just threw yourself and totally engulfed yourself with the world of bartending, learning everything you can, getting the experience, climbing the ladder, meeting the people, uh, getting the accolades, and that gave you access to the people who would invest in you. Yeah. Um, are you willing to talk about partnerships and how to manage those partnerships and how to, <laughs> like, I mean, because I think this is, it's always awkward, right? Yeah. When we talk about money and partnerships, but it's also one of the most important things. It's, to be it's huge. I mean, so it's I, a marriage. Yeah. Failure. And like, I'm willing to, to let you talk about what you're willing to talk about, but I'm not going to push the envelope. There. No, listen, I'm an open book. Um, so we moved over. Connor was the guy that brought us over here, the angel investor. And he knew the, he knew a, uh, a guy who owned Irish pubs in the city called Danny McDonald. And he would have been referred to back then as the, as the sort of king of the Irish pub in New York City at, at that time. Um, and his partners were the owners of Harry's, which is a restaurant just around the corner from here. Um, so between all of those people, they're the own, like they were the shareholders. Um, they Connor and uh, uh, Connor had sold the vision of what we our ability. We came here, sold the vision of what we wanted to do, and but there was don't get me wrong, there was a lot of apprehension. You know, they were yeah. like, do these guys know what they're doing? You know, but we we were extremely confident. You know, it's people ask me all the time, were you surprised that the bar done well? And I was like, no, because I stood across <laughs> the street every night. Yeah. And I was like, we willed it into existence. Right. Um, and I don't say that egotistically. It was, I was not surprised in the slightest. But the partners, there was a lot of apprehension 
and they built everything so if it failed. So the partners had were apprehensive. Yeah. What yeah. were they apprehensive about? Um, they would like the vision, what we were trying to do. How are you pitching that vision to them? Basically, that we were bringing the Irish pub into the 21st century. Okay. And uh, these guys were like, what the, f- what the fuck does that even mean? I'm not going to lie, man. Yeah. I, I sat down and I, when I got here yesterday and I opened the menu and I wasn't like kind of blown away. It yeah. was a curveball. Yeah. I was like, this is like, I'm a stereotype. I'm from New Hampshire, yeah. New England, <laughs> right? Boston. When I go to an Irish pub, it's all the stereotypes you're trying to crush. Exactly. A hundred percent. And I was like, this isn't feel like an Irish pub. And I could tell as soon as I said that the bartender was like, well, this is what it is like yeah. in Ireland. Yeah. And like, this is, this is represents our culture more. And I instantly found that. So I do, I felt like a giant jackass. I was like, oh, I'm such no, a no, I mean, not at all. And that's what the whole, like you're talking about telling those stories. And I, I, I came over here and I, uh, I seen the way I seen customers going to a bar I, I mean, I was a customer. I came in and so many uh, people from Ireland were coming over to visit me and they were taking a picture in a bar and the flash went off in a cocktail bar. Well, a really well-known cocktail bar. And the bartender was like, you need to turn your light off um, because it's putting off the bartenders. And beside me, there was this person, customer that asked for a Pisco Sour, but they didn't realize there was Pisco. Like, Pisco was a style of... Spur- and, and these bartenders were like making them feel like absolute arseholes. Right. You know, it was, it was, it was not trying to build people. You're up. not trying to be pretentious. Yeah. yeah you're just yeah. trying to be true to your culture. Yeah. And you're using, you're enlightening people when they're ready, right. When they're ready for it. You know, right. you're not going in there like beating your chest, but maybe you're sitting and you're, you're looking at a piece of art. God, that's a beautiful piece of art. Then we can talk about our art. That's right. the end. But we're not going. We're not leading right in with that, or we're not leading right in with the cocktails. For me, or the it was drinks. the menu. Like yeah. I opened the menu, and I was like, "This is a very progressive menu." A hundred percent. I was like, "Holy!" Yeah. Like I wasn't expecting the food. I was. I was like, "This place is going to have killer cocktails." Yeah. And then I was looking at the menu, and I was like, "Oh my god, this this I can't wait to eat." Yeah. Like, well, I'm, the food the food we do here is really good. Yeah, um, but it's it, delicious. But that's the thing. I get I get that all the time. Like you say, people ask you, "What do you do when you're out and about in the world?" and I would say, oh, we own, I own an Irish pub. Yeah. And you know, straight away in their eyes are like, oh, they're one of these guys. Murphy's. And I don't, I don't, I, again, if they ask more about it, I'll, I'll go into it. But I, I'm I at the age now where I'm like, I don't need to You're prove. You're not trying to flex. No, no yeah. I'm like, I'm not, I don't need to I, prove myself. I think I might've you know? pulled you off course. I apologize. But you were talking about trying to share the vision with your partners. Yes. And, uh, and they were, and there was apprehension there. Yeah. So they, when you came over, we sold them that vision and, but they seen, our partners, when they deal with their other partners, all their other people that deal with them are quite compliant. We're not compliant. You know, we're not, we didn't come over here to uh, say, yes, sir, no, sir, how, how many bags full, sir. You know, we came over, here's what we're doing. You're either with us or you're not with us. Um, we did not, it was not a negotiation. There was no budging. This is the way we're doing things. And there was a lot of friction around that, you know, with particularly, you were talking to, some of the partners who had 30 years experience in New York and, we're, and we were like, no, this is what we're doing. Yeah. Um, so it was, it was tough. And, and those relationships are like, as you, and we'll get into it a bit, I'm sure further into this, but the partnerships are very, are very tough. You have to make sure you pick people that trust what you like, believe will give you the, essentially give you the rope and the latitude to do what you need, you need to do. Um, Cause there's, there's so many times you see it and I see it all the time with people when they, when they pick partners, that uh, they don't have that full trust. They don't give them the full support, and they start to try micromanage and and get involved, and that's where all well, the tension and stuff. Frankly, happens. man, like I'm surprised because I I I see this a lot 
and this yeah. comes up a lot in my interviews. The first restaurant that people open in is usually a failure mm-hmm. because they have blinders on. They're just so focused on getting the doors open and, and being able to say that they're a restaurant owner and that they're living their dream and they just get into the shittiest deals possible. Yeah. Because they don't they're not paying attention to, they don't know what's a good deal and what's yeah. a bad deal. You're young, you're you're hungry, you wanna you've had this vision, it's chopping away at you. You just yeah. want to get those doors open and you face plant into the shittiest situations because you don't know what to look for. Yeah. Did that happen to you? Thankfully, no we, as you said, there was, or as I said, there was, there was, uh, again, 22 years old when yeah. we were opening this thing, 24. I, I, we were again, extremely fortunate that we have partners with integrity. Um, and they, we, they were the ones that fell on their face and they said, we're not going to do this to you. Yes. Yeah. And, uh, they, like when the first year we opened, we were, and as you said, like we didn't know what we were doing. Our yeah. whole thing was be the best, be the best, be the best. Didn't care about cost percentages right. or all of the business sort of side of things and the partners the partners came in we had to they had to recapitalize the company in year one uh, some other partners were just said no user he's fucked it you know user done um but they believed in the mission they well, put their money where their mouth is and they educated like they showed us like here's how actually it's meant to be that's another to, thing i was kind of curious yeah. about too is because you put all this time and energy into the craft yeah. of of delivering drinks and experience but yeah. what about everything else were your partners um were they handling the everything else yes yes and no um so they handled the, like the financial run another company and the, the like the, the 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 numbers and and all of that type of stuff but it wasn't really until so i had one world's best bar the bar had done really well and as soon as like that going back to that nobody would ever say i'm the uh, the worst again. As soon as I achieved that that real narcissistic vision of being realized as the world's best bartender, I fell in the abyss because like I I didn't enjoy. I when knew did you, how long did it take you to get that title after opening the Dead Rabbit? Three months. Wow. Yeah, three months. Um, Holy shit. So it was fast and uh, yeah, it was cra- like crazy time. Do you know it's my but. On the surface, everybody looking from outside in, we're like, he's got everything. Do you know, he's he's achieved the dream. Where uh, me looking out, I'm like, I've take us to where know, you were. Um, well, it was as soon as literally we won the award, and as soon as I put my foot on the bottom of the podium coming off, I knew because I I was what? relying yeah. on this to like fill a hole in in me. Um, and I realized what was the hole. What was missing? Oh God, I mean, probably self like you're looking back now and you're talking self esteem and um relying on like relying on external validation to make you feel complete. And as you as you know, as everybody knows now, you can't like that only takes you so far until it it, it works until it doesn't work and it, the wheels really came off pretty much right on after that and we done like a, a big world tour and um the bar just was, was getting busier and busier and busier and more and more media attention and all that type of stuff, and I just was not happy. What do you mean um, by the wheels came off? For me, I, the wheels came off for me. Do you know, I wasn't happy with. I fell out of love with bartending. Fell out of love with the industry. Um, started. What was it for, like showing up every day if you weren't in love with it? Well, that's when I started drinking a lot. Yeah. Do you know, I started uh, numbing at, at that at that period, and then again, that worked until that worked until it didn't. It didn't. I think I stopped drinking when I in twenty. 16 um like i woke up in hospital because i holy shit it was it was hardcore Um, i knew you you quit i didn't know the details as to why you quit drinking 
I, I woke up in ho- yeah, I woke up in hospital. Um, so you were just trying to numb the the, I guess the, or fill the void. Yeah. I guess with alcohol, you yeah. wanted to feel something. You couldn't get it from your work anymore. Yeah. You got it through alcohol. I wouldn't say feel. It's not feeling. You know, it was getting away from all the pressures of here, all the stresses of this. It was getting away from. It was honestly turning my brain off. So mm-hmm. it was. It wasn't. It wasn't running towards an emotion as, or a feeling as opposed to running away from mm. stuff. I didn't want to deal. Like I, I started in this industry incredibly young, and all of that years that I missed out on. There, there are the sort of years, and this is hindsight and therapy and rehabilitation. All this. There are the type of years where you develop your emotional toolkit. Yeah, I did not develop that toolkit. My, my, my thing was bars, cocktails, drinking, being the best, and that was my toolkit. I, I when all of these anxieties and and depression and like suicidal ideation and pressures and stresses and stuff what was were bubbling so, so up was the what was the pressure where was the pressure coming from i mean you just won best bartender in the world best bar you're, you're at the top of the world was it was it maintaining i mean it was it so wouldn't all pressure with me is self-imposed pressure it's not external pressure um you know, it wasn't it wasn't pressure per se from the customer side. It was more when they when customers were coming in now, they were coming in with cameras or were coming in with videos. They weren't coming in to have a great Sorry. Ex- no, this <laughs> this is fine, but it took it so I don't there's like a thing where they and the the theater where where they're like they you push through the third wall or the, the some type of metaphor that 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 sort of breaks the sanctity of the moment and, and that's what happened behind the bar. It wasn't no longer you were, it felt like, uh, I honestly, it got to a point where I started feeling like a monkey, you know, when I was expected to perform for people. Yeah. Um, and it wasn't for, it wasn't for me. It wasn't about something that I loved doing. It was for other people. Yeah. Um, Specifically who? I mean, customers, okay. the press, uh, you know, it was just meeting everybody else's Did you feel expectations. The pre- was the pressure from more, where was the, the pressure mostly from? As I said, it was all internal. It wasn't, um, I, I, there wasn't anything that anybody externally did. Um, you know, there would have been there would have been the increasing demands on your time in terms of PR obligations and press and and travel and stuff like that. But it was mostly the big like blowing it all out. The biggest thing was I achieved a goal that I thought was going to make me complete. It didn't make me complete, and then everything started disintegrating. Do you yeah. know, that's that's really what it all. It all boils down to there was stresses and other things that compounded it, but it was basically when I realized that it was at that point where I realized the words are a pile of nonsense, you know. Because if you're relying what do you mean on by that, why are they a pile of nonsense? If you're rely you're relying on if you're relying on awards to a lot of people have a lot of people go for awards for narciss- narcissistic reasons, ego reasons. Well, let's be honest, you win an award, it's going to drive business to, to and that's great, restaurant. you know. When there is, and I'm not, I don't mean to, to denigrate. Awards per se. Awards are important to benchmark. They're important to reward excellent work. Yeah. Um, but to me, it's an output. It's not yeah. an input. Do you know, it's not the reason for the work. I agree. Yeah, one hundred percent. No, I, I don't disagree. I mean, um, I think that people. Yes, to the point you made that it is. It's all for the most part ego driven. Or well, it's not. It's not all. Some people. Some people are. Some people have a better relationship. Like if you're doing great work and then you get an award, that's one thing. Right. But if it's your raison d'etre as it was for us when we first opened, that's not sustainable because you're right. not going to win awards all the time. Yeah, you, you know? see it in. I mean, for you, it's. I don't. I don't I'm not as familiar with the, with the world of bars. Yeah, 
uh, and the, the awards that are associated with the bar, the world of bartending in, in uh, bars. But I know in, in the world of restaurants, Michelin stars, Shane Beard's award, like people are chasing awards they yeah. don't, and they don't think that they've made it, that they've achieved what they set out for until they get that recognition. Yeah. But what they don't realize is that to get that recognition, there's a game you have to play. Yeah. And that game is politicking. hundred percent is, is, is talking to the right people. Be it's, it's a, I don't want to. I mean, it, there's a level of truth, and I don't want to take away anybody's anybody who's worked so hard to achieve that and to get that recognition. I don't want to take away from that, but at the same time, I think it's really important that we that if you got into this industry because your idols who got these awards and you want to achieve that and you never do, you know, you'll like it's it's once you get it to your point, yeah. then what? I mean, you're right. That's a game. Yeah. Um, and I I think what you're like. You see it now, and you'll forever see it. You know when people are playing the game, particularly when you've won the awards and right. you've you've done you've been there and done it yourself. Um, so it, there is politicking involved. Obviously, you've got to back that up with with being great at what whatever right. whatever you do. But there definitely is a game to be played. When we won everything, my thing was that I was I was fed up playing the game. I was fed up with the performative aspect of it. It wasn't authentic. It wasn't real. It wasn't pure. It wasn't. We didn't. We weren't doing it. We weren't doing it as the way. Right now, the way we do everything is because of the larger mission of representing Irish culture. Right, right. now, it's 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 about the we. It's not about the I. Back then, it was not like that. It was it was chasing. It was really chasing a dog's tail, um, and feeling that pressure of like, how do you keep this going? How do you keep being the bar on everybody's talking about? And then you're dealing with the fact that, right, you're on the top of the mountain and anybody that gets on the top of the mountain, people who are at the bottom or in the middle are trying to break you down. They're right. trying to bring you down. Um, and I worry about when, when I talk like this, that I sound like one of those people, you know? No, no. I, uh, I mean, that's not, that's human nature. That's, yeah. <laughs> you see it, you see it all. Like even you, you see it with Simone Biles, you see it with, like you see it with every single person that becomes elite right. in anything. People want to take you down. It's right. just it's the way we're built, right. you know. Um, dude, I could talk to you for a whole another hour. I swear <laughs> to God, dude, I have so many questions. I'm looking. We have 30 minutes left together. Actually, now is a great time to take a break. I think our sponsors. I'm not going to do a speed round because I rather just keep the conversation going. Cool, no problem. There's more things I want to talk about, but we'll be right back. This episode is brought to you by Reachify. Are you overwhelmed by phone calls during a peak mealtime hours? Why let the phone ring when Reachify can direct callers to online ordering, reservations, catering, and so much more. Instead of losing business, automatically turn calls into orders. Infuse your phone with smart technology that can save you time and money and increase revenue for your restaurant. And while Reachify is paying for itself, you can allow your employees to focus on other tasks instead of taking orders and answering facts that are easily found online. Driving digital sales should be a priority as it's been shown to lead to stronger loyalty and higher ticket averages. Not to mention you're getting that precious customer data that you can market to. Reachify, be in control of the conversations you want to have when you're able to have them. Hop on to reachify.io slash unstoppable to find out how to revolutionize the way your restaurant does business. And when you use that link, get one month free after onboarding. Again, that's reachify.io slash unstoppable. 
Restaurant Unstoppable is partnering with CORE, Children of Restaurant Employees. CORE, Children of Restaurant Employees, invites you to learn more about their mission and their fall campaign, Serving Up Hope. CORE is an industry-focused nonprofit that provides financial grants to restaurant employees with children who face a life-altering medical crisis or natural disaster. Serving Up Hope is a national fundraising campaign and an opportunity for the restaurant industry to come together to serve those who will serve us daily. There is complete flexibility for when and how you raise money and CORE has ideas to help. Whether you choose to make a flat donation or fundraise through in-store promotions, CORE provides turnkey resources to make your partnership as simple and successful as possible. It does not stop there. Brands who commit to raising $15,000 or more for CORE during this campaign receive logo recognition on the Wall of Hope, a nationally promoted landing page that highlights the companies that have chosen to come together for our industry. Choose to participate and you will help build a culture of caring and demonstrate your support support for employees and those that qualify for a grant across the country. More than 70% of core grantees are single mothers and they critically need your help to continue to provide funds. So why wait? Showcase your commitment and leadership to help employees in our industry and sign up for the Serving Up Hope campaign today. Visit coregives.org to learn more. Together, we can serve up hope for restaurant families this fall. All right, we're back, and dude, there's just so much that I, I'm so curious about your story. Um, we're still, we're kind of, we're still ten years ago, right? Almost <laughs> to the point, and is we're talking chronologically. Yeah. So take us, take us back to that point um, when you woke up in the hospital. Um, is it safe to say this is the lowest of lows for you? Yeah, that was the rock bottom. Yeah, yeah. for sure. Yeah. So we, we, I think we unpackaged why mm-hmm. you were there because you're, you were, you were escaping the pressure of all the, the, the you lost the kind of you fell out of love with the industry and the mm-hmm. work you were doing and you were, you were finding asylum in drinking and drinking and just kind of avoiding your responsibilities. Is that safe to say? Yeah, a hundred percent. So you're here, you're drinking, like, give me, give me an example of what like a normal night would you, would be like to get to kind of paint the perspective of what that looks like. I'm making you get vulnerable here. I no, of mind. course. Listen, as I said, I'm completely open. The, so everything was great. We started traveling a lot. Um, I was having a lot of issues with my personal life in terms of with my girlfriend and, and um, a whole bunch of other issues. And we've we've talked about a lot of the, the big ones with the, like, I've lost my purpose. I lost my drive. I lost my motivation. I lost all, all of that. And I turned to alcohol. Um, and it worked until it didn't. And then I started just isolating and regressing. Um, up at, like, it was a good few months even not not far off a year where I didn't I wasn't showing up to work I wasn't coming in the wow. anxiety and the depression was like it was debilitating um and I would have been going to doctors to find out like do I have bipolar or am I bipolar to have anxiety uh issues um and you were getting medicated for one one doctor was saying this medicating you and then the other doctor was saying that and then I remember going to one doctor specifically and they gave me a, a vial of um benzodiazepines and uh i took one of these tablets and thought that i was cured and started drinking again you know it's it's crazy i mean you've seen these celebrities that are down and, and all the stuff they had in their system i had all of that stuff in my system and it's only by the 
whoever makes the decisions upstairs or whatever way the word works that I'm still I'm right. still here. I'm sure there's a parallel path for celebrities because they like us like a bartender have these goals, yeah. these dreams, aspirations to be the best, to get the fame, to get the recognition. Then they get it. And I don't I would never want to be a celebrity, dude. Oh, uh, no chance. Absolutely <laughs> like, no chance. It has to be horrible. Uh, 100%. 100%. I mean, you hold these people up, these millionaires, yeah. they have such a good life. I just wish I could be like that. Yeah. Hell no, dude. The pressure and then like we're talking about getting there, yeah. achieving it and being like, Well, fuck, this is just money. Yeah. I and it blows. I'm not happy. And it's incredibly lonely. Yeah. Um and then that's just perpetuated. Like it just continues to to get worse. And then to, to sort of fast forward to that to that time, I that that night before, I was drinking at a big mad argument with my my ex, and um, she went back to Ireland for a planned trip. And I was like, I was trying to that point to not drink because I knew drinking was start like it right. was starting to get to a point where I was starting to wrestle with that. She left that night, and I went, "Fuck it, I'm going to go out and get absolutely hammered." Um, and that was a conscious decision. I never really, I, that was the first time where I was like, I'm going to get absolutely wrecked. Um, because before that, it, the wreck part happened, but I wasn't drinking to get wrecked. I was drinking to escape, like to numb everything. Um, and I went to the local bar it's in Williamsburg, a local bar called Iona, and um, had a big night there. On my way back then, I started, and I, I remember this, well, I don't remember it. I was able to trace this with credit card statements and all this type of stuff. Um, and phone records, but I went to like three or four Dwayne Reeds and pharmacies and brought sleeping tablets. Jeez. And then I went home, blended it all up, and then started drinking it like a like a fucking so smoothie. You were on a mission. Yeah, I was on a mission. Yeah. Like I wanted, I wanted it to stop at that point. And um, I really appreciate you getting vulnerable. No, of course, of course. Um, and then I gave him a phone records. I phoned the I phoned like nine one one. I phoned somebody to say I just done that. So obviously it was a cry for help or something right. like that. I don't remember any of that, um, and then I all I remember is the next day waking up in uh, in hospital in the uh, psychiatric unit, and I was kept there for a week because of like suicide watch. Yeah, and my stomach was pumped, like, all this stuff in me, and uh, then the therapist came in and she spoke to me for a couple of hours, and she just turned around at the end of it and said, like, nobody gave me a clear answer of what was wrong. She said at the end of speaking to me after a few hours, she's like. You're an addict, and once I heard that, it was the most liberating. Like that was me at my absolute worst, like the rock bottom that I said. And I was like, so all I need to do is stop drinking and do this work that you're saying, like go to meetings or or and go to speak to therapists and and do all that. And she's like, yep, and it will get better. Yeah, and that easy and that hard. It's a, yeah, and that's yeah. the thing because people come and ask you about it all the time, and like, what did you do? And it's exactly as you said, it's that easy, but it's it's that hard. Like you right. know. Um, and that and that was the start of the the sort of recovery, you know. So, what changed in you? So we 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 you you shared that you kind of fell, you got disenchanted with the industry. You yeah. achieved all these things, and then once you did, you were like, you're probably expecting the clouds, the part, the angels to sing. Life was going to be good, like you had made it at that point. Yeah, but that didn't happen. Um, where are you today? So when I started first taking those steps in the recovery, um, that's when it became about what I want and what I really want, like not superficially want, not narcissistically want. What do I really want? Who do I want to be? What way do I want to turn up the Who life? Who did you want to be? Um, well, I mean, at that point, it was just figuring, it was figuring all of that out. So yeah. it, it was a couple of months of just 
I, like I went into outpatient rehab. I started doing the work and and uh, I start I, uh, the actual work of recovering while coming to work. And um, that's when I started to realize like why I fell in love with the industry. You know, the storytelling component, the Irish component, the the, the bringing the Irish pub into the twenty first century, representing our culture and yeah. and all all of that. The big like the the larger missionary pieces of it as a you know that's uh, and then to get back to your earlier point about the business fundamentals and learning all of that side that's when i was like i need to learn the way i applied myself to bartending yes dude. and all of the book like i my my book collection for bar, like i had six seven hundred books yeah i need fall to back in love yeah i need to but i need to apply that now to business yes. to leadership to development yes and that's really where it, it shifted from bartending i was like i've closed the chapter on the bartending side i've done it and now I'm going to do it as a as a as an operator, a leader. You know, that's that's where all it's those shifted. people who are in that room with you when when you know you you walked in and all these all stars of the industry were there and they saw you, they recognized you, right? And they like they saw the like the, all the marks you made in their books, and like yeah. now it's your turn to be that person, yeah, right? That is seeing the next generation and or yeah. like inspiring yeah. other people, yeah. like or, you know, I don't yeah. know, I don't want to put words into your mouth. No, I mean, a hundred like you're. I also just wasn't happy with the industry. Do you know, yeah. I, at the industry up until that point, like when I came out of hospital, I'm like, why is nobody talking about mental health? Why is nobody being vulnerable? Why, why, why are we going to New Orleans and getting absolutely blocked and hammered? Why are we showing the younger people in our industry that this is normal? Because it's not. So like, you've been sober for eight years now? Nearly eight years. Eight yeah. years. Yeah. So this is going back 2014. So it would be what are we two thousand so seven years two thousand sixteen two thousand sixteen yeah yeah um so you you kind of come out and you say well, you know you you it sounds like you were your happiest when you were learning about the world of cocktails yeah. and just your mind was being blown yeah. every minute of like whoa like I can do this and yeah. that and here's this inspiration from over there and here's some new history that I can apply to a hundred percent so like you had to get back to that place where you're like where where is this where is like what is this for me now what is that for you now so is it just learning is it is it a business or like what is that I mean is it learning about business no so I mean that's a part of it I'd say the big thing is getting clarity um and reconnecting with your your ultimate why you know the ultimate why when we opened this bar was to challenge conventions around irish culture and irish pubs and irish whiskey irish spirits because a lot of irish culture has been marginalized it's been pigeonholed it's you know there's a lot of plastic patty and patty whackery all particularly in america because you have this such a strong diasporic culture but a lot of like you t- you hit the nail on the head when you turn up the Irish pubs. It's, most of them are shite. Um, yeah. There's there's no, no authenticity. There's no soul. Um, and when I got sober and and really seen the seat, just really reconnected with that. And then what the I what the what way do I want to turn up and achieve? What do I want to do? What's your purpose? And and that was really it. And and for me then it was leading the company. To achieve the bigger, the bigger picture, the mission, the vision, which is to is to celebrate contemporary Irish culture, to challenge those misconceptions, to create the world class company, to scale this company, um, so that we can further spread our our, our our mission and achieve our vision. Ultimately, I want this company to be the biggest and best, not not just the biggest, but the best Irish pub company in in America. Um, which the Dead Rabbit is is one part of that. We have a couple of other concepts that we're launching and. 
and working on. But that it, it was really that those early days and that first year or two where all of this started to synthesize into. I need to be a. I need to work like my leadership was shit. My business acumen okay. was shit. Now we're now we're getting into the good know, stuff. And that's and that, like there's one thing, and you touched on it. Like you start a uh, a business as a chef or a bartender, you haven't got a fucking clue about business. You haven't got a clue about how to run a functioning team. You haven't. You just haven't got a clue about all these things. How to run a PNL. How to how to how to fundraise. How to raise capital. How to speak to investors. How to speak to banks. How to negotiate deals. None, none of that is on your radar. You just want to cook food, serve drinks, look after people. That part is incredibly important. And I never want to take, because ultimately none of it works if you don't have that right. part right. But I knew we had that part right. Um, all of the other stuff was a shambles. Like we ran the company like a shambles. And, and that was really where I seen this is how I best serve the company. By by learning this, by developing my ability, so I can I can grow this, you know. So, what was the what has the evolution for you been over the eight years for this new perspective, for this new purpose? I mean, it's been all out. Um, so there was obviously the initial year to really land the foundation of strong sobriety and and my my toolkit. Um, but it, it's been reading nonstop about self development, business leadership. Um, all the facets of that. Uh, I've done a degree. I've done numerous courses. Um, what has been your biggest inspiration with the self development in business leadership? I'd say the biggest person that inspired me. Um, again, I, I was. This was, and this is very, very early in the recovery. I went to a um, a a session by Sean Finter. I'm sure you've had other people here talk talk about Sean. Um, and I went and listened to him speak and. He, because again, and thankfully with the work that people like yourselves are, are are doing, there when I was when I started to think that way, there's very little literature or or content for people to learn how to be a good business person or how to be a great leader or how to run a a functioning company. Um, so he did a session in New York that basically was a teaser campaign for a larger uh, a larger course that he was doing called Accelerate. Um, and I went and did it. I was like, right, I I want, I want to go and to do your session. I paid. I was right after. I was like, here's my details. I'm going. First time Sean Finter has been mentioned on the show, by the way. No way. It's yeah. the first time. Yeah, yeah. Oh, wow. so I just looked up his. Uh, I was like, I, I mean, I a lot of the guys that you've had on here have worked with Sean Finter. Maybe they, maybe he, they they did mention his. Um, actually. actually, you know what? He, he's he's be, in Maryland. Yeah, he'd be a good yeah, guy for you, you to talk what? to. I think he, they did mention his name. Now that I think about it. I'm sorry for yeah, um, disregard. Um, but yeah, you're getting into like what he was doing for you and how he helped. Yeah, you. so I went down to his session. He has this workshop, as you said, in Annapolis, Maryland, and um, it's a three day workshop. And I done it for for two three years. And uh, wait a sec, is he the bar metrics? Yeah. Holy shit, I'm such a dumbass. Yeah, I totally know who Sean is. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> um, so many names. There's another Sean that, who's based on the West Coast, and that's who I was I was getting Oh, to you're know. Sean Canyon? Maybe. Yeah, yeah, um, He's uh definitely know who Sean yeah. Pinter is, for sure. I, I, I almost connected with him, so I'm totally a jackass right now. No, he's <laughs> he's a great guy. He'd be the guy I'd tell you to, tell you to talk to for sure. But, um, yeah, I went to his session as soon as I went down, and I, you go into one of his rooms, and he has his, his reading list there, and I'm like, she sent me a reading list and he sent must have sent a hundred books bought them all immediately read them all within a couple of months um and then but you read these books and then that 
one of the authors talks about another book that they base this principle on. It's, it's the same way I was with the cocktail stuff. I, I read one book and it went to 10 other books. And, right. and that's what it did. And then, um, yeah, so I was doing all of that part. And then I was also really reconnecting with the Irish piece. Um, and then it, it was also during that time, to be honest with you, a couple of years in where I was becoming disillusioned and unhappy with my business partnership. Um, and that cuts both ways. So I'm not saying anything to you that I'm sure Sean, who I opened this bar with, would, would be saying either. But I wasn't happy with the way that the representation of Ireland was being done, some of the strategic decisions. Um, and you're getting more comfortable in yourself. Like, not comf- you're just comfortable in yourself. Self-aware. You know who you are. Yeah. Um, there's things that you want and you don't want. Whereas when I was drinking, if I disagreed with a decision, I would I would wouldn't say anything, drink about it, and then move on. Where now it's like, if I don't like something or I'm not happy, I'm going to act on it. You yeah. know, yeah, for sure. Because so, you, you wouldn't before you were escaping in the alcohol. Yeah, you'd be like, I don't like this. I'm going to go drink drink it off. Well, the big thing that I say, I I as opposed to running away from my problems, I was running to them. Right. You know, when and there was a lot of problems, so it wasn't like I. You see it a lot of people who start to get sober, they try to fix all of the problems right away. Yeah. It was like I'm putting all of the, the stuff that I can put on the things I was avoiding. I'm gonna put like I basically put it in the shelves. I'm yeah. like here's what I'm gonna tackle year one, year two, year three. Um so it was during that time where I was putting tremendous energy into looking at my vulnerabilities, fixing my vulnerabilities, building myself, building what I really wanted to do and what I wanted to achieve with with, with this company. And then figuring out how am I going to get there? Do you, Do you remember? Know? I mean, we, I think you've gotten plenty vulnerable enough for us today. Yeah. I don't need you to open up anymore. I mean, I'm not going to hold you back from doing that. But if you're looking at the shelf, right, and you have, you're prioritizing a list essentially yeah. of saying this is the most important, urgent things I need to do. And what was that in terms of the business? How did you start prioritizing what the business needed? So immediately when uh, when I got sober, the the the, the tier one stuff was uh, my phone, like me. Like it's that oxygen mask theory. Like you need to, I needed to put the oxygen mask on myself. I needed to get strong in myself yes. before I start turning up. You um, can't lift up other people. No, exactly. That's just, and let's say I, I, I live that every day. You have to look after yourself. Yeah. I said like, I, I'm a huge runner. I'm a huge reader. I do a lot of things. Like I, a lot of people in this industry are, are boastful about working a hundred hours a week or 70 or, or whatever. And I'm like, that's nothing to be boastful over. See, if you're working that much, your system is not set up right. Right. You know, but that's a cultural thing. It's yeah. Like but an issue with our transform the industry. A hundred percent. It's, it's yeah. bullshit. Yeah. I, and I see it. I see people still, like I seen some, somebody who's well respected last year who said they track the amount of hours that they work. And it was like a hundred hours a week and they put it on their social media. I'm like, that's nothing to be proud of. Like, I'm right. sorry, but that's, that's like, that's bullshit. Right. Um, so I wanted to get that part locked in first, like me turning up strong, right? The second part was then getting quick wins in the business in terms of systematizing things, putting okay. procedures in, putting processes in. Where were you in. weak in that, in that regard? I mean, everywhere. We didn't yeah. have – we didn't have uh, – we had strong, robust systems. That not, not even, Like we had our recipes. We had our way of doing things. But when you're starting to train – like you're, you're, I mean, I could start it off from when you're running an interview – we were, uh, when I was running an interview, there's a great book by uh, uh, Brad and Jeff Smart, uh, Top Grading and Who, and it's based, they call this form of hiring and recruitment voodoo magic because 
a lot of people pay and still it's still this is still the practice today in all of these cocktail bars and in our industry they'll sit down and base a hiring decision whether you go for a beer or like I'm only going to hire you if I go for a beer with you. And I'm like, that doesn't mean fucking shit. You know, it's, can that person do a great job? Right. Can they serve customers or can they, like, you've got to have a system in place for how do you recruit? How, what questions do they ask? What competencies are you associated with your role? Um, how do you onboard somebody? How do you offboard somebody? How do you, like, within just people management or, or performance management, there's a million and one things right. to learn. So I'm going to try to I'm going to try to paraphrase up to this point. So first thing first was working on yourself. Yeah. Second thing was standardizing, creating systems and processes in yeah. your business that were missing. Uh, and then third after that was the overall strategy of the company. Okay, so that's so when I started getting disillusioned with decisions. Where are we where are we going to be in ten years? Yes. Where do we have to be in five years to be on track for ten exactly. years? Where do we have to be in two years to be on track for five years? hundred percent. Where do we need to be next year? Yeah. And you reverse engineer it. And that was like a, a, up until like we were saying at that point, like I was codifying our our, our core values, our our operations manual, the way that we do everything, and then we had this mission or our our mission statements bringing the Irish pub into the 21st century. And then I was coming into the barn looking at some of the things that we were doing. I'm like, this is not That's bringing why the it's Irish so pub. important to yeah. say what you want to 100%, do. A hundred percent, yeah. Because then 100%. you can put yourself through the filter. Yeah. Yeah. Are we doing this? A hundred percent. And then that's where some of the friction, not some of the frictions happened. Like there was, we opened up a Cuban bar. Um, I'm like, I, I realized right away that the Cuban bar was, a, that was right after I came out of rehab and it, we, we made so many mistakes because we didn't have... This was inf- uh, Blacktail? Yeah, we didn't have the... Inf- it was a lovely bar. A lot of people liked it, but we didn't have the infrastructure in place. We didn't, we didn't, have, we didn't have systems, processes. We didn't have procedures. Um, we didn't codify what we expect, what that looks like, how people behave, what we care about, what our expectations are. None of that was, that was all up here. Right. But a new team member can't, right. can't be expected to, to realize that. So there was Blacktail, the issues with that, the issues were coming in the Dead Rabbit, seeing what was happening here. And then we get to the pandemic. And then the pandemic was really, that was the... Nail in the car. That was a nail in the car. <laughs> yeah, yeah really, it was because it took away, I think you're, I think, well, I certainly was, I think a lot, but I, I speaking more broadly, I think a lot of people are afraid to make risky decisions because they're comfortable in that moment but when the pandemic happened i'm like there's no comfort anymore you know if this is this is the time to make a to take a risk yeah um yeah and that's and that's what happened you know i went that's when the business partnership ended and and now we're we're doing what we're doing now you know so i mean just again so it's so important like before you can lift others up Behind every great restaurant is a great person. Yeah. And that restaurant is an extension of who they are. Yeah. Their values, their standards, their expectations, uh, you know, and, and, and then, then you have to recreate yourself in the systems, processes, procedures. Because yeah. if you're not there all the time, then how is that standard going to be withheld? 100%. Right? Protocol, culture core values all these things you've yeah. got to get it on paper and you have to get it spread and people have to be bought in exactly right? and exactly. then the next thing you did was you fell back in love yeah you you fell back in love you found a vision a place you wanted to take yourself and everybody else yeah. that you could do for the next 10 years 100 percent. that you could be proud of that resonated with you yeah that, and, and that was spreading irish culture yeah. and giving respect to something that you're proud of a hundred percent that you, that's a vision that's yeah. something that's a why yeah that's something people can buy into yeah 
right? Um, this is huge stuff, man. Yeah, so. I mean, it was, and that's the thing. Like you were before we started, you're talking about a ten, a ten year success. That this this process is a seven year. Like you're, I'm speaking to people now, and they're like, "Oh God, the company, everything you're doing, it's so, it's it's amazing." You know, the team you have, everything, like everything's so incredible. It took seven years to get to this point. Um, obviously, we opened the bar ten years ago, but the Dead Rabbit today, and the, and the company we are today, and the other things we're doing is so markedly different to what we started started with. Like, I look back in that bar that we opened, and I'm like, that was shit. You know, a lot of the things we were doing there were, were rubbish. Um, obviously, a lot of it was great, too, you know, because we wouldn't have... What was we, shit? Our food was shit. Um, the way that we recruited was shit. The way that we trained people was shit. The way that we... The way that I led people was shit. You know, it was much more autocratic and authoritative. Um, you know, I was, was, again... I get to actually sit so, here all day and say what was shit because there was so much of was shit. Here's the shit list. Food, training, leading. What am I missing? I'd say food, training, leading, business. Business. Because uh, we were... Strategy. Yeah, strat- like, yeah, all of those things. So let's talk about where you were then and where you are today. Starting with food. What, 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 is that the fir- first thing you focus on, would you say? or? I mean, I'd say... No, the first thing I would... F- I, I take a real inside out approach so I, the thing i focused on f- first and foremost was the why um what are we actually falling tr- back in yeah love. yes yeah. but well why but that and also what is the anchor what's the driving force behind the whole company and that really is challenging the misconceptions around irish culture it's advancing the contemporary Challenge irish the story. shit out of me when i yeah. sat down yeah. I, was like, oh, I had it all wrong <laughs> um so for like really getting that locked in and then once I've got the once I had the why locked in then it became about the high do I have the right people on the bus yes. are we going in the right place do I have the right systems in place and then what is like yes. what it all looks like this is you powerful know? So shit that's why how what yeah, yeah so dude. that's it really came from who the, taught you that well that's um, Simon Sinek, the uh, Golden Triangle, yeah. he calls it. So I, start with why. yeah, start with why. It's a, to me that was the same the same way I would talk about uh, Dave Wandridge in terms of his catalyst or his place in my mind at that particular time in my life in terms of high important. Like I looked at him as like the Messiah. That but the the start with why was really was really Simon's a formative book. book. Yeah, it his, was, his newer stuff, man. Yeah. Uh, I think have you read um, the, the Infinite Game? Yes, yeah, that's dude. excellent. And that's yeah. back to the why. Yeah. It's like when you have a why, like communicating Irish culture yeah. and, and educating people and, and on like where twenty first century Irish culture. One hundred percent. Like that's an infinite game. One hundred percent. Yeah. Yeah. One hundred percent. It's 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 perpetual. You know when yeah. So th- starting with that and then. Getting that's not an award for for so sorry I want to go back. To this, <laughs> I, I hope I didn't cut you off. But like an example, so an example of a, a definitive game is getting an award, mm-hmm. being the best. Yeah, right. Like that's something like that comes and goes. Yeah, exactly. But the best are changing the world. A hundred percent. Yeah, they, and that, and we're like, listen, my the part the sandbox that we're in is Ireland. It's contemporary Ireland. So that's the part of the. That's what I want to. I want to. I want to elevate the Irish arts. I want to show the creators of Ireland, the, the culture shapers of Ireland, and I want to basically provide an experience that immerses Americans into what that is. Because for most people, when they come to Dead Rabbit, or most people as they walk through the door, 
over half of them for sure. That's as close as they're going to get the Ireland. I want to make sure that you're getting the full proper experience and it's not fucking shamrocks and, and leprechauns and shillelaghs. Like, we're much more than that. You know, that was the Ireland of 50, 60, 70 years ago. It's not the Ireland of today. So taking that inside-out approach really... Like, once I had that locked in, then it was making sure I have all the pieces to tell that, to, br- to bring that to life, yeah. you know? So, um, so first, you start with the why yeah. to get that. And then, you st- what was what were you working on next? Was it the training or the, the leadership? What do you think? We- yeah, I mean, was it was all happening be- at once. Sort of, sort of all happening at once. You know, it's I, I was a, like a dog with once I, once I had connected with that, it was like I just started taking a hatchet to everything. Yeah. Um, that, like, I when I started with Sean, Sean was like, Sean Finter was was pick one thing. I can't believe I forgot who Sean Finter was. Start, so he, he was uh <laughs> he was like start with one project, do yeah. that project for a quarter, and then come back and we'll do another project for the next quarter. So he has like all these different business functions. So there's recruitment, performance management, communications, digital strategy. Like there's all these buckets that you can focus on. And I went and I, I, I <laughs> when I was first sitting, I'm like, I want to do four and and a quarter. And uh, he's like, you're fucking nuts. And but I, I did like I four went buckets in a quarter. Yeah, it was like I'm wow. doing four things. And um, like a lot of people were when they go and work with Sean, I, f- I feel like they're expecting like a ma- him to give you a magic pill. Um, and they make everything better. You know, no. that's that's not the way it works. They can just show you the path. You're yeah, the motherfucker exactly. who has to walk. They, down they open it. the they, yeah, they open the door for you, and you have to go through it. So. Yeah. He uh, doing that, so it was one. Uh, I think one of the first things we worked on was the um, the whole architecture around recruitment and culture, and how do we systematize that? How do we build that? You know, he started having conversations with me about what do you believe? What are your core values? What is your mission? What is your purpose? Do you know, and these are all terminologies then that were were, were new to me. Do you know, um, I'm like, what the fuck? Like, I thought core values and mission statements and all that type of stuff was for for Google or for fucking Can Microsoft, you know, slide this in. How fucked up is it that you were at the figuratively, figuratively top of your game, right? Winning the best of in the industry. And you had never heard of this shit. It's crazy. That's crazy. what, that's what I'm, I'm not trying to like talk down on you. Or anything. No, it's insane. It's, it's, it's an nuts. issue with the industry. It's nuts. It's that we're, we have no, we, we celebrate the wrong things. Yeah. And I'm not saying it's all about money and business. Yeah. Because what you were doing is important too, but it's nothing without responsibility, physical yeah. responsibility. Because you're responsible for all the people who come to work for I you. Couldn't like, agree more. Like, and I, I still, ha- it's thankfully it's a bit better now with with stuff that you're doing and Sean's doing, and, and other people are are waking up. But it's still like we recognize people for for being idiots or right. being like what, some of the stuff that happens in the industry today. I'm like, really? Like this is what we're we're, sh- we're we're shining a light on this, you know. Right. Like these people don't even know what they're they 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 wouldn't know a P and L if it hit them in the face. You know, it's right. It really really bothers me. Yeah, you know. So he started. So he he helped you kind of clarify who you were, so you could attract onto yourself the right people. Yes. Getting clear with your core values, your yeah. vision, your mission, all these things. Yeah. Getting the culture committed to paper. Yeah. So it started with culture then, and then we went into. We went into like it went into communication systems. It went into what do you mean by communication like systems? The way that you speak to your teams, um, the way the software solutions that you use. You know, we had a, a schedule before it was on a fucking Google Doc, um, or the way that we ran payroll was was you know. So we started bringing on scalable infrastructure. Um, so payroll systems, performance management systems, learning sure management systems. Today? So the from a learning management system, we use a software solution called Rise. 
um, that basically lays out all of the, the, the rules of the company, all of the training paths and all of the basically like everything that they need to know to succeed in that role right um for everyone for a year so that's all laid out we've done that for if you're a bartender server barback runner door person leader so i did a workshop on this we call it paths of tangible growth yeah so like you almost look need to look at your business as a university yeah exactly and when people get hired they're a freshman what degree do you want you want to be a chef yeah here's the here's the the path you take yeah you want to be front of house manager here's the path you take 100 percent. so it was all like you know we before we didn't have any scalable infrastructure. Um, now we have it all. Like, listen, we're still going to make mistakes, but um, I enjoy making mistakes because ultimately we'll get to the right place. But we are a much more professional outfit since that moment where I'm like, right, we're going to fix all of that. And but it really d- it did drive wedges. You know, with my my previous partner, he would have been much more like you're trying to overly corporatize the 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 business. You're 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 messing things up. You're making mistakes and. And, uh, and there was truth to that, you know, you had to make mistakes to, you had to fail your way forward, but, um, yeah, not every swing is yeah. going to be a home run. Exactly. But yeah. yeah. And, uh, I made plenty of mistakes and I will still continue to make plenty of mistakes, but we had to get the company in a way that we had to set the company up as a proper business. Right. Um, you know, because ultimately, if we don't do that, then we're we're on a we're building a foundation on in you, sand, right? Like you can't. It's the difference between having a people dependent organization yeah. and a system dependent. One hundred percent. One hundred percent. Your business is worthless if it depends on you, exactly. Because somebody can't buy you. Yeah. You know. Well, and if they do you, buy you, you're not going to be very happy, are yeah, you? No, but it's the same. You see a lot of these bars now, and they're solely dependent on, and restaurants are solely dependent on the chef or they're solely dependent on the bartender. When you come to Dead Rabbit, you're never going to see me. Yeah. You might see me if I'm walking through the bar, if I'm keeping an eye on something, or if I'm with my family, but you're not seeing me. Yeah. Um, but you're seeing my fingerprints. Your presence. All, all over yeah. the place. Um, and you can only do that. You can only... You have to do that through scaling your impact, and you only can scale your impact through building an actual... Like the operating system of your company you have to spend a lot of time on. Do you know what? I really believe that syst- like the system is what we're all system developers, whether it's a good system or a bad system. Or another great quote, I think it's from uh, Deming or somebody in that sort of vein. Every system is perfectly designed for the results that it gets. So if you have a shit bar or shit restaurant, you've designed that. that you've designed it exactly for what it's doing right in that moment. And, and it's the reason when, and when anything pops up in the bar, which it always does, or in the company with something happening, I always go back to the system. I never, I never blame a person. I'm like, there's a system error. We need to find the error, and we need to figure out how do we make it better. Yeah. You know? Yeah, man, I love that. So, um, communications. Uh, you talked about that. The the recruiting, uh, having like actual framing for growth. So, yeah. and how that information flows, and where you can get that information if you do want to grow. Um, what about? So that was. I think that's training, right? Yeah. We cover training. Um, Cover recruiting. Uh, you're not a chef. Your food no. is phenomenal. <laughs> how? Tell me about how you went from not really being proud of your food to like now, really like where it's almost competes with attention with your cocktail menu. You know? Yeah. I, I mean, again, that was another evolution. We opened and it was we Those have scotch eggs. Dude. Yeah, uh, they're so good. So good. Um, we opened and it was a, a thing of you have to have food. So we hired somebody that could do food, and it was it was okay. It was yeah. it was food. Um, however, my expectations have changed. I, I I I'm a firm believer. Again, I I talk to books all the time. 
Um, there's a great book by uh, Michael Levine called Broken, Bindu- Broken Windows, Broken Business. And it's a lot of it's based on the broken windows philosophy of criminology, which there's a lot New of problems. York. There's yeah. a lot, I, I'm aware there's a lot of problems with that, um, and and rightfully so. But he uses it within the context of you always have to look for the broken windows in your business. So I walk into anywhere now, any type of industry, or like I was in uh, Just Salad half an hour before I met you. And the the their mees with the the garbage was a mess. Swing that mic to your left for me, real quick. Just oh, yeah, their their um their mees was a mess. There, there was shit all over the place. That's a broken window. Yeah. Um, your bathroom being disgusting. That's a broken window. Right. Your 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 team member being disengaged is a broken window. Do you mind if I offer a little more context <clears throat> yeah. behind that? So uh, I think it was somewhere in New York in like the nineties or eighties yeah. or something yeah. like that. A uh, new police commissioner came in and that's exactly what he did to find the bad parts of the neighborhood. He looked yeah. for broken windows. And the idea is if you accept, I think it was broken windows like, and graffiti and trash, yeah. right? Yeah. So like if you accept that this is the culture what you see is reality. Yes. So if you fix the broken windows, if you pick up the trash, if you clean up the graffiti, I think graffiti is more culturally accepted. Yeah. Now. People yeah. don't really associate it with like bad <laughs> stuff. But back then it was like bad. Right? Yeah. Um, if you, what you accept, what, what is, what you see is reality. Yeah. So if you want to change the reality, don't, ex- don't accept that standard. Exactly. And, and the getting not to go back to the food. And when I got the clarity in the foundation and I was getting stronger in recovery, I just stop accepting. I was like, that's a broken window. The food's shit. Yeah. We need to acknowledge that it's shit. How do we make it better? And then it was going about finding the chef. How, how do you make sure the window doesn't get broken again? You have to constantly be vigilant. Um, you know, when that's, that's a big thing that I, I really work hard on instilling with our leadership team and our, our, our whole team. You know, when I come in and I see a light bulb out or I see dust on one of the picture frames or I see chewing gum underneath the, the table, I'm constantly saying, like, do you see this? Do you understand that this is not good quality? Do you understand that this is a broken window? The big way to o- overcome that is through, like, as my role now as a leader of the company, it's communicate, 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 explain your expectations, explain the vision, explain the standards constantly. All like you're, you just never stop. Right. It's not like you can fix a window and then go, it's fixed, and never come back to it. I'm here every single day, tasting the food, seeing the food. Tasting the drinks, seeing the drinks, seeing how the team are operating. I'm I'm close to the business at all right. time. Now, that's what like Danny Meyer calls like constant gentle pressure. Yeah, right. Like you know the standard, and you're constantly putting things back in place when it's not. Yes, but do you literally have to be saying it out loud every day, or are there other ways that you can keep that pressure on? Well, there is now because again, the the big there's there's um there's three or four barriers to me as far as I can see it for scaling the company that we need to overcome. So yeah. I've talked to you a bit about scalable infrastructure, making sure you have the right systems, the, the operating your operation system is is set. You have the right software solutions, the hardware solutions, you, the training. Do you mind sharing your t- am I cutting you short right now? Keep going. No, go, go ahead, go ahead. What is your tech stack? Like what does that look like? So it's split between leadership uh so basically team members and then customers. So on the on the team member side, we're going the whole the whole way through their experience. They are brought in. We have a, a HR consultant and software solution called Human Rezo that takes care of all of our handbooks, all of the compliance stuff, getting all of the the, the legal tax information, all that type of stuff boxed off. Then they go get filtered into uh, Paycom, which is all of our payroll processing, scheduling, 
then they get filtered into RISE, which is our learning management system. That's where all of the content and the training courses live. Then they get filtered into um, Slack, which is our communication system. Then they get filtered into Lattice, which is our performance management system. That's where we do our appraisals, our spot checks, our check-ins, um, really make sure and set their goals and, and identify their weaknesses and get them to Can you say that one more time the last one? Lattice. Lattice, like yeah. L-A-T-T-I-C-E. Okay. Um, you know, so we have a whole bunch in the team in the team member side. Then on the leadership side, you've got uh, you've you've we have uh, a couple of different ones. So we have one uh, workflow uh, project management solution called Fellow. Um, we have Toast, obviously, which is our POS system. So you, there's a bunch for leadership, and then a bunch for the team. And then on the customer side, it's making sure that everything's frictionless and um, as as effortless as possible. So with with the likes of your uh, reservation system, Resi. You've uh, event management in triple seat. You know, there's 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 other bits and pieces, and then we're real. I'm really keeping my eye on and starting to develop our our AI side of things because that's really starting to change the. What excites you in that vertical? It excites me because I'm a big believer in, and again, this is another great book, Zero to One by Peter Thiel. Um, I know he's another complicated character. He's quite a con- contrarian. Um, How's your back doing, man? We're, we're, we're just eclipsed two hours. No, no, I'm here. good, I'm good. Um, his whole thing that he uh, prophetizes in his book is leveraging the complementarity of uh, of bits and atoms, essentially, so te- uh, technology and people. Um, and I'm a huge advocate of that, and that was something that was definitely uh, crystallized and, and compounded during the pandemic. I am a big believer in technology if it leverages the power of hospitality. Mm. It's not meant to be used to take away from it. So looking at it through the paradigm of making, of taking friction out of anything. So a customer trying to get a reservation, how do we make that frictionless? A customer trying to book an event, how do we make it frictionless? A team member trying to communicate to their leader, how do we make it frictionless? How do we make it easy? Because I believe if all of those things are made easy, then we can get to the big stuff of like, how, like let's, deliver consistently world-class experiences well yeah well what's going to happen is if you don't take the time to to respect other people's time what's going to happen is you're going to your business is going to feel like an inconvenience exactly because the world is going to become more convenient so things if if i can't order food from your restaurant with with less than three taps of a screen then I'm going to resent your restaurant because it's wasting my time. And that's really where (laughs) when you're getting excited i'm excited about ai because it basically makes a lot of it takes a lot of friction and makes it obsolete um you know it's essentially we're starting to work now we're we're pretty far in in terms of developing a ai conversational bot essentially that lives on our website that you can just go onto our website and talk to it and it can get you a reservation it can order your food it can book an event it can get your credit card statement from two nights ago or th- or three weeks ago, where are you lear- going to learn more about AI? Where's I just keep. I, it's not. It's not AI specifically. I'm constantly trying to. I'm constantly trying to learn. I'm constantly trying to. Def- I'm keeping an eye on everything that's happening and yeah. seeing if we can incorporate it. And it's obviously AI is a, a big one that everybody's talking about. But it's everything. You know, I read extensively through industry magazines. Constantly reading about books. Anytime. Anytime uh, something comes up like NFTs or, or whatever, I, I read about it. I'm like, does this something that makes sense for us in that context? No, you put it aside when conversational AI or when this whole thing with ChatGBT came out. 
I looked at it, can we take advantage of this? At that moment in time, it was no, but now you're starting to see in some of the companies, the solution-based companies that are harnessing that technology for yeah. different things. The I'm answer like, is yes, but you haven't seen how yet. Yes, yeah. um, and you just keep an eye on it. You know, yeah. So I believe... I'm a firm believer in that the the ceiling today is the floor tomorrow. Yeah. You know, so if you think, if you stand still, somebody's coming. If somebody's going to eat your lunch tomorrow, so I'm constantly thinking, how do we invest, innovate, improve, so that this company is future proofed as much as possible? Yeah, um, I think that's actually a good segue. Like, where are we headed? You know, if like what here is something that I like to echo. I think that the industry has notoriously been very guilty of being reactive. Yes, we react to the world out yeah. of fear. Like we don't, our heads are down working ninety hours plus a week, and we're just like we do things when we're like, oh, I better do this because I'm afraid if I don't, that then right. Yeah. How do we go into the future more intentional, less reactional? What like how do we can we get to that point? Do you think? Well, I think the pandemic was a hugely important moment. For me, thinking thinking that way, again, without beating the death of books, there was a great book by Dan Heath um, called uh, Upstream. Um, and it sort of goes to like focusing on the problems upstream as opposed to dealing with the downstream symptoms. And when the pandemic happened, everybody had to close their businesses. Um, everybody got laid off. And then we reopened and nobody came back. So... Everybody was like, well, uh, fucking Joe Biden, uh, give everybody money and they're all staying at home. And I'm like, that's an incredibly lazy assumption. I'm yeah. like, mate, there obviously is truth to that. There is some people that were like, nah, I'm good. I'm, I'm getting enough. I want to sit and play my Xbox. Right. But it's so lazy. Do you know what I'm like? Maybe, like, let's really, and I, I do this with everything. I'm like, let's really peel back the layers and, and assess why people are not sticking with the hospitality industry when we're professing that we want to make it more professional. There is better options. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And it's like people want health insurance. They want upward mobility. They want... Uh, Flexibility. Yes, they, they want all of those things. And we're, we're not giving them that. Like we're not meeting them where they're, where they're going. And I'm a firm believer in... And uh, and going to the going with going to the direction of where the ball's going or the puck's going, like I where wherever society's going, we're, we need we need to go with it as opposed to going against it. How do we do that? Well, what for for us, it was it was a, we took a holistic approach in terms of we need to scale the company because we're losing people. So thankfully, with Dead Rabbit, we've always looked after people. We've always invested heavily into the culture, heavily into people. So we were even when we reopened, we reopened with a full team. Everybody came back, and we're, we're very like people here make money, but in terms of long term, it's we've we've implemented healthcare, we've implemented wellness, um, we are now creating opportunities for people to be upwardly mobile. We're making sure that we're paying north of fair and and best. Like I would say, we're probably one of the best uh, compensation companies in in, uh, in in our sphere. But it's also then changing everything around the way that we work we're a zero drinking culture we don't stay open to 4 a.m um we're a very professional culture we we make sure that we provide people with great tools and resources and train them and show them how how, what the best looks like what great hospitality looks like what great manhattan looks like what a great customer experience looks like um you know so i'd say from soup to nuts everything has changed we're just a much more professional we're a professional outfit now we're a lot of people still in this industry are not professional outfits. You know, you go to bars now and they're they're taking shots with customers. They're they're getting drunk behind the bar. They're they're 
team members are feeling them up or you know there's all this toxic shit because we're we're not we're afraid to deal with it so i'm i'm trying to stay and to go back to that book i was talking about i'm trying to deal with i i really want to wrestle with the upstream the big issues that create all the small issues you know i want to get to that stuff because if you deal with that stuff then the smaller stuff will take care of its take care of itself you know you said the answer to keep people is to scale why is that the answer for us because we lose like if you look at there's no upward mobility exactly and we're like we and this is great like our 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 our, we keep people for four five six years and then but they go on and they become yeah barry's director there you know we're we're making other companies stronger right because we're we're not growing um so that's that's one of the things where I'm like, we have, we can train this. We, we we've already proven that we can create and 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 uh, we can create world class people. Like not that they're not world class people before they come here, but we can scale what we do. do. You know the way that we think, the way that we operate. Scale your mission. Yes, exactly. And that's the infinity. Yeah, a hundred percent. It applies everywhere. Yeah. So yeah. that's that's one of the big uh, drivers. But it, so that on that side, but it's also bottom up as well do you know before when we first opened the bar we were hiring in celebrity bartenders i have no time for that shit now it's we're hiring character we're hiring for the person we're hiring for the attitude and then we can train for the skill yeah do you know so we get them in as barbacks as hosts as junior people really immerse them in the culture train them yes. invest in them grow them and then they start you, like you, the sky's the limit exactly like yeah. our and you, anywhere in the company you look at now there's evidence of that. Every single person on our leadership team started from ground zero in this company. Um, and I want to keep that as much as possible as we scale. I am aware that we're going to have to hire outside of the company for, for really specialized functional roles like a CFO or a, you know, those types of roles, a HR person. But I'm hopeful even for HR. I'm hopeful well, if yeah. somebody wants to learn that. The cool can, thing – sorry, go ahead. No, no. Sure. Go ahead, if go somebody ahead. wants to learn that, you can. We can invest in them learning that. Yeah. You know, because the big thing for me is that they're culturally aligned on what we're trying to do. They believe in what we're trying to do, and they believe in the core values yes. of the company. I right. don't, don't want to work with assholes. I don't want to work with people who don't believe what we believe. Right. You might have some type of mathematician working for you. You weren't even aware of it. Yeah. Right. And yeah. then, like, well, maybe they want to go to school to be exactly. an accountant. Exactly. Like, exactly. Okay, how can we help you get yeah. there? Yeah. Um, but I think the other thing that's exciting right now is this idea of fractional executives. Yeah. So, like, a, a fractional CFO, a fractional CMO. Yeah. And, um, it's also cool because these people are now like, like you need marketing in your business today. So why like, like a chef would have equity in the business and a general manager or a front of house person would have equity in the business. Now a marketing person will have equity yeah. in your business because that's a key role. A hundred percent. People are thinking differently now. Yeah. It's super exciting, dude. I, I want to respect your time. You said you'd give us some extra time and you have, and yeah. uh, I want to make sure we're out of here by four thirty. So is there anything we did not mention before we wrap it up and say goodbye? I don't know. I mean, you've got everything. You've, yeah, you've, man. You've got, you've got pretty far in. It's fun, dude. You were so generous, man. Uh, I really appreciate you taking the time. And, uh, of course. That's what we do. Long format, yeah. deep dive conversations. I have no idea what we're going to discuss when we get started. Yeah. It's, like listen, it's brilliant. It's very, very yeah. a lot of fun. Thank you, man. You were a great guest. There is one question I ask all my guests before we wrap up. And it's usually a part of the speed round, but I'll throw it in here. If you got the news, you'd be leaving this world tomorrow. All the memories of you, your work and your restaurants, or your bars would be lost with your extension or with your, with your departure with the exception of three pieces of wisdom that you can leave behind for the good of humanity and your legacy, what would those three pieces of wisdom be? Um, 
I mean, I've always a hard time with these sort of corny slogans, but they <laughs> they, they they do work. Um, I'd Launches. say I'd say authenticity for me is critical. One, um, be yourself. Don't like don't let anybody like you've you're here to do you. Um, you can absorb from other people, but you have to you have to be yourself. So that's so that's, one. that's one. I'd say it's a marathon, not a sprint. Mm. So when I first started in this industry, I wanted it all right away. And I'm seeing this a lot with the younger generations. They, they want to bypass the learning and get to the, 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 the title that they want. Or yeah. the, they, want to, they want that right away. It's, it's a marathon, not a, it's not, not a sprint. It's, like, an so ex, it's an affinity game. Yeah, so, yeah, exactly. And it's enjoy the process. Enjoy the journey. Um, Is that three? That would be, that would be the, the third. Like, that for me, that's the third because... The journey, like to me, the journey is 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 everything. Yeah. Um, because like it's never you're you're waking up, you're you're chasing this every day, but you've got to enjoy. You've got to be present and and enjoy it. Um, while you're while we're building this, or while everybody when anybody's doing what they're what they're doing in this sphere, like remember to enjoy it. You know, because you could walk out tomorrow and be hit yeah. by a bus. You could have terminal cancer. You know, and enjoy it and enjoy. And I mean that with um. With every sphere of your life, I see a lot of people that obsess, and this goes back to the 70 hours or 100 hours. Make sure you're giving time to every sphere of your life, your family, your friends. Do you know, it's, you're, when you're on your deathbed, you're not, um, you're not going to profess about the, the best technology solution or the best idea you had for your company. You care about the impact that you made yes. and, and how you showed up and how you showed up in your life. And then the last one for me, if, if you can put Four. in a fourth, would be uh, <laughs> like... And I'm a big believer in uh, again. This is I think this is one of Jeff Bezos's philosophy, but regret minimization. So I always ask anybody if they have an idea, if there's something they really want to do. I'm like, sit on your deathbed. Would would you still regret it then? Then you should do it. Yeah, um, I think this is why I'm thinking about buying an RV. Yeah, yeah. I mean, you should. You like, dude. If if and I ask myself anytime I'm faced with a big decision, I always ask that question. If I was on my deathbed. Would I regret not doing that? And if the answer is yes, I'm going to make it happen. Right. Dude, this know? has been a lot of fun. Thank you so much. Um, I do have all my guests call somebody out. So who, if you found out was a guest and you did, and did for what you did for us today, who would that person, who would you want that person to be listening to that episode? So for me, and we've talked about him a few times throughout this, it would be Sean Finter. Um, he was a real transformative figure in, in, uh, in, my, in my life. Um, so I would definitely recommend him because he 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 definitely he will challenge your thinking yeah um and it's really up to you to to listen to that and then take it take it wherever it, it takes you but he he's definitely somebody that i think is hugely important and particularly within the context of a lot of the stuff that you're talking about transforming the industry yeah where is the industry heading let's be proactive and not reactive Sean's right on the tip of the spear in terms of talking about those things. Yeah. Um, so he would definitely be the person that I would point you towards. Beautiful. Uh, this has been a lot of fun. And uh, if we're listening to this and we're thinking, you know what? I could work for this guy. I want to be a part of this organization. <laughs> Maybe I'm Irish listening to this someplace, and I'm proud we'll of my touch. heritage. Yeah, get in yeah. touch. Uh, you're opening across the country, Austin right now, yep. uh, New Orleans. Uh, yeah, so we're in uh, Austin in Q1 of next year, we have a third location that we haven't communicated yet that will be open in the summer, which is a dead rabbit. We're Boston. Uh, Boston. Ta- yeah, we're talking about um, <laughs> New Orleans potentially will be the fourth. And then we are launching a new concept called the Irish Exit. So that's our transit-focused 
locations that we are uh, opening in Moynihan. So we're only opening these in, in air, airports, train stations, and sports arenas. Cool. Um, and that is a much more playful and dynamic and much more quick service focused so model. If we're interested in joining your team, because you are growth, like growth is the yeah. plan. Like, what's what's the best way to connect? My email is jackofthedeadrabbit.com. Beautiful. Yeah, so um, you can send me an email. If you don't send on LinkedIn because I'm, I'm shit at LinkedIn. <laughs> me too, man. I totally get it. This is episode two, sorry, 1022. Head over to restaurantstoppable.com slash 1022. We'll have a summary of today's discussion as well as any links to tools and services that were recommended. Jared, you got your work cut out for you, man. He's, he shared a lot of things and books today. <laughs> uh, it's going to be a lot of show notes. But, uh, man, this is where I say thank you so much, dude. Thank um, you for having me. I'm just a guy who who ask questions uh, you, you make this show possible uh, you literally I, c- I couldn't do what i do without people like you so thank you so much and there is no questioning you are unstoppable thank you very much cheers <laughs> thank you there's another episode wrapped up here at restaurant unstoppable special thanks to our guest today jack mcgarry for coming on and getting super vulnerable and i think this was truly an inspiring story not only just because of the the success you had in your career reaching your goal or what you thought was the pinnacle of your your career these these awards uh but then just being living proof that it's more than that that there's growth beyond these things that the Getting to this point in your career isn't the end. It's just the beginning. And um, just the, the constant evolution and growth as an individual is just truly inspiring, man. Thank you so much. It was a lot of fun talking to you and learning from you. And I know that my listeners got value from this one. And if you are enjoying this podcast and you want more just like it, we do need your support. And there's a ton of ways you can support the show. Uh, one way to support the show is to join Restaurant Unstoppable Network. And actually, now is a great time to do it. I don't know if you guys caught the episode with Prakash Karam Chandani. Uh, he was amazing. I really enjoyed talking to Prakash, but he's going to be live this coming Monday, September 4th at 3 p.m. Eastern in the network to answer your questions. So if you enjoyed that podcast, if you have questions for him, if you wanted me to go deeper, now's your chance to connect directly with him in the network and ask the questions you wish I did. We also have uh, Christine Miles coming in the network. Um, so Christine was a past guest. We were actually look, trying to get her in the network last week week uh but she got, she was sick we had to reschedule so that's going to be monday september 11th if you're hoping to join that that uh workshop on the recipe for making a lasting impact on your restaurant through listening then be sure to join us monday september 11th at 3 30 p.m eastern and then i'm making myself available at least once a month uh, in september it's going to be september 18th at 3 30 just to, to be there for you to talk and to who knows uh, where we'll end up as far as what we discuss, but uh, coffee with Eric is back. And then the other ways you can support the show is just by supporting our sponsors, uh, using our affiliate links and sharing this podcast with anyone and everyone, you know, aspiring to be great in the industry. And I cannot say goodbye without saying thank you to the people who make this show possible. Thank you to Jerry Parisi at Sumadre Podcast for your editing and copywriting. Thank you to Cal and Miola for the amazing job you're doing over at Restaurant Unstoppable Network as our community manager. And thank you to Anna Tazen from the Good Kind Consulting for your executive support and counsel. That's it for today. Until next time, peace out.